Welcome to the one within all. We are here again with my new friend, David Warner Matheson. And it was only two weeks ago that we talked to him, but there are so many details and ins and outs of everything astrotheology that it's pretty much a topic that we could cover exhaustively for the rest of time. And I like that about it (laughs) personally. And I'm going to have a lot of fun having another talk with David. And to really lay it out, we're going to be getting into the Norse pantheon specifically thor the thunderer and how he connects to some other many many other i should say sky god thunder god storm god type of characters across the world a lot of information on the norse side of the astro theological mythos is found in this book right here star myths of the world and how to interpret them volume four norse mythology which you can find over at starmythworld.com linked in the show notes that's david's website and man, uh, man, when we say, I just want to say something before we get into it. Whenever me and David or whoever else I might have on to discuss these things, whenever we say that such and such is a star myth or astro theology, I'm trying to be tactful here. <laughs> this is not to dismiss the mythos or the moral or the cultural relevance of that specific story. We're not trying to take away the uniqueness of any one people. We're just showing how this sky is the common sky that we all share and that this is the text or scripture for where that story is found. And that it also does show that we have some kind of common roots as a universal system, which I love. And, you know, it kind of mirrors the way that if there's one system that has many forms, faces, characters, it mirrors how I tend to understand all this stuff currently, which is that the ancient system had one deity who maybe it was of a triune nature, but the characters of the sky clock or the celestial texts of scripture are like the psychodrama or metempsychosis of this one deity who is also seen in its emblem as the writer of the sun or the sun being the vehicle of that deity. So you find this one, you find many of these characters in more than one place in the celestial text. It is a big, weird weave, and I'm really excited to get into it tonight. We'll also be talking about some Tree of Life, Yggdrasal, uh, Yggdrasal, however you say that. And uh, yeah, I'm just going to kick it over to David. Welcome back, man. Thanks for coming to uh, visit us again so soon. 
Hey, Chance. Thanks for having me back. <laughs> yeah. So how have you been in the last two weeks? Yeah, good. You know, last time uh, we weren't able to share the slides, so it was pretty easy to say yes to your gracious invitation to come back because, you know, I had some stuff to show. You had mentioned that you had that book. Thanks for holding it up. That's Star Miss of the World, Volume 4, talking about the celestial aspects of the Norse mythology. And so I had prepared to talk a little bit about the Norse, just as a, you know, just as a touch point to explaining or demonstrating the evidence that the world's ancient myths from every culture share this common foundation of celestial metaphor that I've been exploring and that I, you know, talk about it in my book. So, um, yeah, so I'm looking forward to just bringing that up and talking about it. And some of the things that you were saying, you know, let me just really briefly say it is very clear that the most ancient civilizations that we know, ancient Egypt, ancient India, ancient China, ancient Sumer, and other ancient cities and, and uh, you know, kingdoms in Mesopotamia, ancient Mesopotamia, are all using, I have found evidence, this is not something that other people necessarily argue, but it is very clear to me, and the evidence is overwhelming, that they are all using this same system. There's a book that I uh, wrote right after the one that you showed. That one, Norse Myths, was 2018. In 2019, I published a book called Ancient Worldwide System, where it looks at the myths of India, the myths of ancient Egypt, the myths of ancient Sumer, Babylon, um, and shows their celestial connection. So if the most ancient civilizations we know of, and by the way, this also includes cultures around the world, Africa, the Americas, the islands of the Pacific, um, other parts of Asia, Europe, Scandinavia. So if all these cultures are using the same system, including the most ancient ones, like we know how ancient ancient Egypt is, where did it come from? It must have, well, there's a couple possibilities. If we were arguing it in court, a lawyer might say, well, how do you know the Egyptians didn't go sailing around and give it to everybody else? Well, you could argue that, but everybody else has, they're very different right from the start. It's like they've already diverged from some common source, even more ancient. I think that's the more likely explanation is there is something more ancient than ancient Egypt, something more ancient than ancient Sumer, something more ancient than ancient China, ancient India, where these all came from and potentially, you know, took on different forms over the millennia, but it's very, very ancient. And there is now evidence, archaeological evidence for advanced human culture predating dynastic Egypt, very ancient and very advanced. And so, and there's also, you know, the, the Comet Research Group, evidence of a catastrophe, the Younger Dryas investigations that have come to light in the last 10 to 20 years, a lot of evidence for a cataclysm, maybe 13,000 years ago. So what I like to say is it is there's the ancient world that we call the ancient world, ancient Egypt, ancient Greece, whatever. But there's something 
even deeper back in time. I call that deep ancient for want of a better expression, pre-cataclysm. There appears to have been a cataclysm. We could argue about what it was that separates the ancients from something deeper. And it's possible that the ancients didn't fully understand the inheritance in these myths, but they probably understood them better than we do today, you know, four or 5,000 years later, you know, after Egypt, there's, there's been even more things that have happened in between us and ancient Greece, ancient Egypt, ancient India, um, to cloud the waters even more, but there's something even deeper back. And that's where I believe these came from. I don't know if that sheds any light on some of the things you were saying before about, well, was it all one worship of one God? Was it many gods? I believe this was some ancient system, which is a very powerful, profound explanation of our inner verse, what's going on inside our own, you know, landscape of our own internal world. That's also reflecting, oops, sorry, <laughs> what, what's going on in the, I was talking about these vast things and then I hit my, uh, spoon my fork from dinner that I was hastily devouring right before the show. Um, the, uh, because we, we still have to eat, but it describes this internal landscape brilliantly. And it also describes what may be going on in the invisible realms, the divine realms, the gods that give, you know, life to the trees and the streams and the crops and the fields the the powers of the universe that give rise to men and women, you know, that allow birth, like the miracle of a child being born. Where does that come from? We can't even really explain how our thoughts work. Like, it's just uh, amazing. And yet the ancient myths contain all this profound wisdom. So I believe it's some ancient system that then there was a cataclysm that separated even the ancients from the deep ancient, I, I would say it's a deep ancient system. What was the original shape of this deep ancient system? Nobody knows because there's this massive cataclysm between even the ancient Egyptians or the ancient Sumerians or the ancient Chinese and the deep ancient. So, Yeah, that all makes a lot of sense. And there's also a way of looking at it that maybe feels a little more conspiratorial, but that at least in some part, whatever this universal system is, consciously aware priesthoods have maybe obscured <laughs> the antiquity of their own systems. I'm mostly pointing the finger at the Vatican, who seem to have deliberately scrub a lot of the attempt to scrub a lot of the evidence that they were working with something that was pre-existing to their own version of it, right? But we don't have to get into the weeds on that. I'm happy to start working on the slides you generously prepared for us. Right on. Well, let me just say a few words about that. So conspiracy uh, plays a role in this story, but when it really started is open for debate. I find evidence, you know, a lot of people say, Oh, it was, you know, Babylonian, uh, you know, they, they invented debt money to enslave everybody. And um, actually, Ancient Mesopotamia, like all the ancient cultures up until about the Roman Empire, some, some in ancient Greece, forgave debts periodically. That was baked into the ancient myths of 
freeing debts. But the the ancient Mesopotamian king Hammurabi f- uh, forgave debts multiple times. He he proclaimed, you know, we would call it a debt jubilee. They called it andararum. There's um, economists that talk about this, particularly Michael Hudson, fantastic economist, talks about the ancient world. Debt forgiveness was part of the ancient system. But so I believe that there has been a conspiracy or we could say a second catastrophe of literalism that got rid of the ancient system. The ancient system was actually for, I find evidence that it was for the benefit and blessing of individuals on the individual level and also on the societal level to enable the society to live up to its full potential. And then an oppressive or oligarchical or, hey, let's take these gifts of nature or of the gods or the universe, however you want to understand these gifts that we can't explain. Like, who's making the sun shine? Like, is any corporation responsible for bringing you the sunshine or the air or the fish in the ocean? No, that is given by nature or the gods or the divine realm. Hey, but so, in 2020, Waters has put on the uh, futures trading market. So I think they're trying to make all of those things. Oh, absolutely. The, the privatization, so privatized, you like words, prive comes, that word prive is found in the word deprive. Privation means to wall something off or take away or make it exclusive. To privatize the gifts of the gods and make them belonging to only a few oligarchs is the the opposite of what the ancient system was, I argue, all about. So you bring up, I don't want to get too um, off on the the conspiracy side, but there has been a conspiracy to suppress and erase the ancient wisdom. That has happened. So when did that start? Certainly by the time of literalist Christianity, you talk about, you know, the Vatican I've written about this in, in some of my other books that um, we haven't mentioned. The Undying Stars, 2014, and Myth and Trauma, 2020, talks about the evidence for a deliberate takeover and destruction of the ancient system. So there was a catastrophe that separated the ancients from the deep ancient. So how much did they know? You know, did they I think they were doing their best with what they remembered, but maybe they didn't get it quite right. And, you know, you mentioned priesthoods, you know, were some of the priesthoods doing things uh, to oppress people instead of to uplift people. I don't actually find evidence that like the ancient. Look, the, the ancient kings like Hammurabi were preventing oligarchy, the destruction of the ancient system enabled oligarchy once the ancient system got destroyed then we got feudal europe and you know the feudalism is basically oligarchy on steroids with you know swords to keep everybody in place and also with the mind control element of the church to say oh no you cannot overthrow those people they are born higher than you they are they are they are given that position by God, and if for you to go against it, not only will you die in this life, but you'll burn in hell forever for raising your hand against a noble who's born better than you. That's an oligarchical mind control system that came into being. Um, I, I would call that a second catastrophe. I would say that the ancient world was trying to follow this ancient system. And then something came in to overthrow even that ancient system and to institute 
something that's against the ancient system. So yeah, that that's that struggle is still going on very much today. I think I could agree with you. The philosophy of you know the wisdom tradition itself is not not only harmless, but it is uplifting. <laughs> but you know, before we move on, I'll just throw out this quote from Synesius, Bishop of Alexandria in the fourth century. And many, many other church fathers, early church fathers said things like this. In my capacity as bishop of the church, I shall continue to disseminate the fables of our religion. But in my private capacity, I shall remain a philosopher to the end. So, you know, this is privatized wisdom in a way, which is the ultimate natural resource, because you could give somebody all of the physical resources in the world, but they can't take that with them. But if you communicate wisdom to them, which is why I think all of these uh, sun, savior, solar deities were also related to the logos and to the giving of language and letters. Because if you can communicate wisdom to somebody, that is the most timeless treasure that they could take on with them in their metempsychosis of their individual soul's development past life. So, you know, the privatization of wisdom is like the first walling off of the most naturalist of all natural resources that maybe was necessary to then like build the uh, corrupt monastic system that slowly took the land rights on paper of everything in the world to the point where it's like, where it could even go in the world today where you didn't have to have a deed or a title or pay somebody rent or like <laughs> to just exist and live on earth. Like that's uh, you know, it's not, it's, it's crazy how far it's gone. You know, yeah, very important line of discussion for sure, Chance. And look, it's so I, I I briefly mentioned the Bible, but it's very clear to me, based on my research, and I've written a whole book on star myths of the Bible, that the Bible from first to last is based on the same celestial system as all the other myths of the world, and so the Bible is teaching these profound truths. But when you take it literally, which was not the way it was originally um, understood, you know, these stories were not understood literally. Um, Well, I mean, we could, we could get into that whole line, but it is quite clear that they are not literal. They are celestial in nature and they are metaphorical. They're esoteric. They are, spiritual and that doesn't mean they're not true but they're not literal so the literalist in, interpretation is a misinterpretation and it turns into inverting the actual message but uh yeah what i'll show in the slides is some evidence when i say all the world's myths are based on the stars and that includes the stories in the bible i, I want to show some actual evidence and and what I mean when I say it's based on the stars. What do I mean? What I mean is the characters, the figures, whether it's Moses or David in the scriptures of the Bible, or whether it's Thor in the Norse myths or Zeus in the Greek myths or Shango in the myths of some of the cultures of Africa or um, Hurricane in the in the Popol Vuh of the Maya, these different figures, these different gods and goddesses, or in the Bible, there's not that many gods and goddesses running around, but there are 
you know, human figures like Abraham or Jesus, they are all based on the same pattern of using constellations that have specific, it's like a language or it is a language. The constellations have specific characteristics and meaning within this system. And the cycle that they're pointing to has esoteric meaning in the system. And I'll show a little bit of that. It's very, it takes a little while to like get your head around it. And I've, I've also made online courses. <laughs> it's, it's probably best explained in video form with, with visual illustrations, which is what I try and do in my online courses. But I've written, you know, thousands of pages of books showing it as well with pictures and, you know, verbal descriptions. So it's a, it's a sophisticated and profound system, but it's, it's not really that hard once you get the outline of the system to understand what it's trying to explain to us. And it has to do with our own individual uh, living up to our f- full potential. And I also um, more recently am seeing more and more of how it relates to societies living up to their full potential. And we're definitely not creating a society that enables men and women to live up to their full potential, quite the opposite. So it's actually about curing trauma, healing trauma, so that we can, you know, not self-sabotage on an individual level. What we have going on is inflicting trauma. And, you know, literalist Christianity is basically a trauma-inducing system, like on purpose, You're born in absolute sin and you're going to go burn in hell forever if you don't do this, that, and the other thing. It's just, it's it's like the kinds of things that you learn in Sunday school are traumatizing. And there are people who, um, you know, have real issues all through their life because of the things that are inflicted on children in this literalist misinterpretation of what these ancient, profound, beautiful, uplifting trauma healing stories are actually all about. Yeah, it is like the first steps. Sunday school can be the first steps towards somebody basically learning how to um, ignore the senses that they were given (laughs) by the creator in favor of what authority tells them. You know, that classic phrase, letting authority be the truth rather than truth be the authority. Uh, so one thing, what you're mentioning is like the keys to the system that help you get your head wrapped around it. This is the black belt class here in terms of our audience. So I can uh, say that pretty certainly. I picked up this H.A. Ray book, The Stars and a New Way to See Them. Wanted to show that off. H.A. Ray, The Stars, New Way to See Them on your recommendation. Very helpful to be able to have multiple, start imagining multiple ways to outline the constellations. And you do a great job of that in the one book of yours that I'm so far <laughs> working on. I definitely plan on getting into all of them. But, you know, what you said about the Bible is really uh, important to re- because people don't look at that as a story of gods and goddesses generally. But if you understand that beyond the keys of the astrological symbolism that the language is also encoding or concealing the uh, very same notions that would have been there in maybe like Greek antiquity or Roman mythology, the book of Job is a good example. You have Job 38.1, which you quote in your chapter on Thor, actually, which says, then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind, which is referring to Jehovah or Jah, Yah being a storm God. But you know, what gets overlooked is the name Job. 
B and V, philologically, those letters interchange all the time from one language to another, sometimes within dialects of the same language. So who is Job? That's Jove. So like what the Bible often does is these biblical heroes are occultly like incarnations of the savior deity uh, representatives of, in my opinion of the greater cycles of time that are being measured in their smaller portions and larger portions, like Noah being the, you know, he's 600 before he gets on the boat <laughs> and comes off. Uh, he's an old man when he gets on and he's like a youth or a baby when he gets off in some stories, that's like a regenerative moment, a new cycle kicking off. And uh, yeah, so it helps to be able to see that there's like, there's a biblical character in the old Testament, uh, Jephthah, which is basically like yay or yah, and then Ptah, the maker. So, you know, if you have the language keys too, plus the astrological know-how, then you're off and running, you know, not a lot can get past you. Yeah. He's one of the sons of Noah too, Jephthah. The, uh, what you're mentioning is very important. And I actually, I talk about it in Myth and Trauma. So first you held up H.A. Ray. Myth and Trauma is my most recently published book. And uh, I've got a whole chapter on H.A. Ray in Myth and Trauma. I mention H.A. Ray in pretty much all of my books because his outlining system is so important. And that's what I'll be showing when we, in a second, <laughs> when we finally get to my slides. Um, but uh, yeah, H.A. Ray, one of the most important writers of all time, in my opinion, because he's the author of, with his wife, Margaret. Curious George. George, right. But Very also important. that book that you held up is, no, I guess you're over there, that you held up is so important because that is the outlining system that enables you to really see it. And he, to my knowledge, he never mentioned, hey, I'm giving you the keys to understand. But the other point that you brought up I also dive into this a little bit in myth and trauma because a different church father and one who was really influential on me, Augustine or Augustine, some people, more people probably pronounce it Augustine, but in California, we would say Augustine. Um, you know, Augustine was very well-educated um, Roman, uh, well, Roman citizen, but from Hippo, which is in North Africa. Um, and his mother, Monica, was credited with being, you know, this devout Christian influence on his life. But he was educated in the philosophy and the classics, and he really supposedly looked down on the, you know, the scriptures of the Bible. He was like, oh, they're not very well written, like the beautiful works of ancient Greece. But um, then he had this conversion experience. Anyway, his 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 writing is so he's just a brilliant writer. I mean, he can pull out the, the rapier and really the, you know, the long thin sword, like that the three musketeers use. If he really wants to skewer an opponent, he'll be like, Oh, I hear some, you know, miserable such and such bringing up this point. He'll pretend like, you know, somebody's arguing against him. He'll just bring in, he'll bring in like the counter arguments and then he'll just skewer it. He's a really uh, powerful writer, but he, uh, where was I going with this? Yeah, he was, and he's very literalist. He said, look at the Bible. Look at our God is so holy. Not like, this is after, of course, he's become a Christian and becomes an apologist. In other words, an arguer for why you should be a Christian and not worship the Roman gods or the Greek gods. He says, 
not a philanderer like Zeus. Like when you read about the Greek gods and goddesses, oh, they're doing all kinds of horrible things. They're, you know, having sex with mortal women. They're doing this and that, you know, people are boiling their own children and serving them up to other kings. And ah, it's just hideous. And I, uh, and he uses that as an argument of saying, see how much purer we are. And I said, look, what's really intriguing is in the Bible, those different characters do all those same things. It's just now it's humans doing it. For instance, you mentioned Job and his linguistic connection to Jove. That's fantastic. I didn't think of that. I, in fact, have already forgotten that I quoted Job 38.1 at the beginning of that chapter that you mentioned. So thanks for bringing that up. But I was going to say, when you were introducing that, look at David. David, as I demonstrate in Star Myths of the Bible, as well as in other you know, videos and podcasts that I've been on, is definitely connected to the very same constellation that Zeus is. So what does Zeus do? Well, Zeus does lots of things. He, you know, he's, he's a thunder god and he does, you know, he's powerful in battle and he, he battles Typhon and all these things, but he's also a big philanderer. He goes down and seduces Leda and he transforms himself into a swan or he seduces Danae, the mother of Perseus. And what does David do? The same thing. He, he sees Bathsheba from up on the roof and he goes down and, you know, seduces Bathsheba. He is the same constellation as Zeus. Demonstrably, I can demonstrate it and I have demonstrated it many times in, in also in some books as Zeus. So in the Bible, you have David doing that as opposed to necessarily you know, God doing that. But David is a man after God's own heart. He is actually the same constellation as the God of the Bible. The, the God of the Bible is demonstrably the same constellation as Zeus, which is why he's a whirlwind God, a thunder God, or a, a, a God who thunders, uh, who, who parts the Red Sea with the breath of his nostrils. He, he uses wind. He appears in the wind of the day in the book of Genesis uh, when Adam and Eve are uh, have have eaten of the fruit. The text says in the cool of the day. That's how it's translated most of the time. But if you look in the footnotes, or if if you look in the Hebrew, or look in a you know a Hebrew lexicon, the word is in the wind of the day, probably in the afternoon. You know when wind kind of comes up. As a surfer, you want to usually surf in the morning, <laughs> but because the winds start blowing afternoon. But in the wind of the day, when he first is looking like Adam, where'd you go? It's in the wind. He's associated with wind. He's associated with that same constellation. And his name, Jehovah, is obviously linguistically connected to Jove. And yeah, hundred uh, percent. Yeah. Mar- Marcus Terentius Varro. Who is yeah. cited by Saint Augustine? Yeah, yeah. Says Deum Eudorum esse Jovum. <laughs> Jove was the god of the Jews. And yeah. again, if you have a little familiarity with language, and especially how things can get funky when you're transliterating from one alphabet to another, the Yod Hey Vav Hey that we hear of as Jehovah or Yah or Yahweh, while the I could be a J, <laughs> vowels always just interchange. So you could have an O there. Uh, and then the Vav could be a U or an e, a V. So you could have U, I-E, U-E, and was sometimes written that way, which is philologically also even the same as Jew. <laughs> yeah, J-E-W. Yeah. You know, uh, I mean, it's uh, and, and, and Yahweh Jove, is Yov. 
Yeah. And, you know, the V sound or the W sound and the V sound, you know, like in German, when we watch a like Hogan's Heroes or something, you're probably too young to remember Hogan's Heroes, but the Germans always say, V will break you, you know, or V, you, we have ways of making you talk, right? I'm insulting all my German listeners. Um, but, uh, I don't speak German. I'm not making fun of anybody, but the, the, I'm making fun a little bit. Um, but the W sound is a V sound, right? German, well, you're, Germans are one of them that you're allowed to make fun. You're of. allowed to make fun of Germans. Yeah, um, <laughs> I'm just trying to, I'm just trying to imitate Christoph Waltz. What a great actor <laughs> in the in uh, Tarantino movies. Um, no, look, what I was going to say is, what's really interesting about what you said is there's a state in the 50 states of the United States of America, which has that exact same pattern because the Native American name for the great deity in some of the Native American languages was Ta Iowa or Ta, it's like basically Ta Yahweh or Jehovah. And we have immortalized that in the name of one of our states, Iowa, Look, just what blew you my just, mind. What you just said about, well, the I could become a J or it could become a Y. Uh, Yahweh. I, like, how do you deny that this was a worldwide system when you've got a state sitting there right on the map, staring you in the face with the name Iowa that came from a Native American name word? There it is in, in plain sight right there on the map. This is a worldwide system. And nobody can explain that. The conventional academia has no way of explaining that because it blows apart their paradigm. Uh, just like the ancient technology blows that, apart mosaic history, you mean, which is the paradigm that academia is actually built on the mosaic history, well, <laughs> not to pick on just one religion. You know, the, 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 well, the system has become corrupt in all quarters of the globe, but. Well, literalism, look, there's what I would call, you know, there's this aggressive literalism that has shaped the West. Okay. And Moses is a constellation. I can demonstrate that Moses is a constellation. I can show you which constellation, the same one that always either carries a spear or a staff or a rod. That's the constellation that Moses is. I can show you why he's parting the Red Sea. He's a constellation. So let me show, um, let me show some slides to like people who are either getting interested or their eyes are glazing over. They're saying, wait a minute, what is he talking about? Constellations? Moses, I, I can't visualize this. Let me show some slides that will hopefully, and I'll start with some Norse myths for a change, just because when you first contacted me, you mentioned that, well, I started with volume four. Is that okay? <laughs> yeah, of course. Um, you you want to read Norse myths? Start with Norse myths. Um, I would actually tell people now, probably it's best to read like my most recent books and work backwards because, you know, like anybody else, I'm continuing to learn and evolve my understanding of what's going on. So if you want, you know, my freshest take on everything, that would be in the online courses and then, and also my most recent books. And as I go back, um, you know, in time, my understanding, you know, was, was earlier in 2014, say than it is today in 2023. Anyhow. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And I just wanted to jump ahead to the Norse stuff because that's what I have the least familiarity with in terms of the actual stories of it. Read the Bible and all that, but yeah, uh, they say bring the heat, David. They get it. They're getting it. Everybody's getting it. <laughs> bring on. Roll the slides. The much, 
the much right. anticipated slideshow two weeks in the making. How do I roll the slides? Like you basically got... just pull it up as you know, okay. as if you were looking at it and I'll bring it and on. You'll screen. bring it onto the screen. Whoops. I yeah. When right. I see it okay. full screen on your little window, right I'll be like, on. okay, we're good to go. All right. They are Is up, everybody buddy. seeing it. So this was my, you know, this was my intro slide. Oh, wow. I'm going on interverse, the interverse podcast with chance. And, uh, somehow I didn't learn how to um, share on, <laughs> on your particular platform. So nobody got to see these slides on five February, but here we are uh, a couple of weeks later on the 19th of February, and we'll jump right in with Thor. This is a illustration from the 1800s. There's not that many, you know, there's no real like Greek statues littered all over Scandinavia from, you know, ancient Norse statues. They were mostly carving things in wood, some stone. So we have some images of Thor, but this is like an 1800s representation. But I found it to be a very interesting 1800s representation of Thor because this outline, you know, don't get all hung up of exactly how he looks, you know, for for a 500-year-old, he looks pretty good, but he doesn't look like Chris Hemsworth in the 1800s, I guess. They were, uh, you know, they portrayed Thor this way, and this isn't made by any ancient Norse. This is made by somebody in the 1800s, but still, they've done some interesting things with this outline. It's very telling. I don't know who illustrated it, and I don't know why they put Thor in this particular posture, but I will tell you that this particular posture has specific characteristics that match up with specific constellations, actually a sp specific aspects of a single constellation that over and over again plays a powerful celestial sky god associated with thunder, lightning, wind, hurricanes around the world. Also a god who is typically jovial, jolly, but has a quick temper. Think of Thor. He loves a feast. But if you make him mad, he just like in an instant will pull out his hammer and, you know, smash someone's head to smithereens in the in the Eddas, which is the surviving texts that we have of the Norse myths. Joe insatiable. He's way. eating like um, four oxen at once. That's right. Yeah. There's one particular myth where he's, uh, you know, he's just partying down. And he's like, well, give me uh, I'll take four of those, you know, fully dressed oxen all the stakes you know on a cow times four um anyway but let's look at this outline i just want to call your attention to the fact that he's brandishing a powerful weapon overhead i'm going to show i'm going to line this up with a constellation in a minute and then i'm going to show you artwork from ancient greece and around the world really brandishing a powerful weapon overhead with one hand while the other hand reaches out forward like this okay not that unusual, but we'll see this over and over. It's a very distinctive posture. He's got this knee bent in kind of a lunge position. Sometimes it's an even deeper lunge. This artist, whoever he or she was in the 1800s, doesn't have the you know deepest lunge. Often that back leg is, the knee is almost touching the ground, but the rear leg is extended out, often with the knee you know deeply bent like a real lunge like you're in the gym doing lunges and the heel will be raised. You see how the heel is raised off the surface that he's standing on there. And so these characteristics, I'm going to show you in a, in a bit in the stars, but before we leave this illustration, this, this illustrator, I don't know 
of any actual reference in the Eddas to Thor wearing a crown. Maybe there is one, but I don't know of one. But he's got this crown with how many points? One, two, three, four, five, six. And then the illustrators also put stars around his head, like the European Union or something. One, two, three, four, five, six. Now, I'm not arguing that this is an ancient Norse connection. In fact, I don't think there is one, but this illustrator is preserving some characteristics that are interesting, and I'll show you in a minute, showing this this pattern of artwork can be shown to go all the way back to ancient times, but to continue up through artwork in the Renaissance, it's really intriguing how these celestial components are deliberately, I mean, you cannot argue that this is, a, is just an accident. <laughs> this is very telling. And also, before we leave this image, look what he's standing on there. He's kind of on this, uh, you know, cliff rock thing with a bush on top of it. See the green bush? Just like, you know, where does the God of the Bible meet? Moses on, you know, on the mountain or in the burning bush. It's really intriguing, especially when, if you, you know, if you take some of my online courses where I really go into the Bible, I've got Celestial Bible Tour Part 1, Celestial Bible Tour Part 2, where I really go into the Moses story. I break down the burning bush and use lots of textual references. In fact, there was, there was a, uh, a Bible commentator I talk about this in the course who said, yeah, obviously the name Yahweh is related to the name Jove. And then he got so much flack for that, that later he said, uh, so uh, this is, you know, I take it all back. It's a complete waste of time to, tr to try and illustrate a connection between Jove and Yahweh. And I said in my course, it's almost like he took it back without taking it back, because he was taking it back under duress. And he said, it's a complete waste of time, something like that. And it's, well, it's John like McHugh says that there's been an actual ban on this type of syncretism mm. in academia for at least 100 years. Yeah, this is like 200 years ago. But this guy got so much flack that he said, yeah, forget looking for that connection. It's a complete waste of time to talk about it. Like, nobody's going to listen or, or, you know, the authorities have decided yeah, absolutely. Look, there, there, there have been, and I've talked about, it, I'm not the first person to see these connections, particularly in the Bible. There was a very important pastor named Robert Taylor, an, a minister, an ordained minister in England, who started seeing this and talking about it. He was kicked out of his job. He lost his, you know, income. He was actually put in jail different times totaling for three a total of three years behind bars he spent for talking about this stuff you can read his well he was in the gale even worse than jail you uh, know yeah okay yeah <laughs> i mean like our you say jail we're talking about gales like you know it's back then they weren't even as nice as they are to prisoners today probably well yeah i i don't know what you know level of security they threw him in but the point is he was writing and talking about this in the 1820s 1830s it was all published how come nobody's like this should be common knowledge to everybody that the Bible is based on the stars because Robert Taylor was laying it out very clearly in the 1800s. And yet he's not a household name anymore, but not to get off track. Let's look at some of these characteristics of Thor in this drawing. Look, you don't actually need illustrations to demonstrate that Thor is connected to the constellation that I'm going to show you, you know, in the book that you have, 
obviously, I use textual evidence from the Eddas, the actual sources that we have about Thor, to show that Thor is related to the constellation that I'm going to show you. But the illustrations make it you know, visual for people when we're watching on, you know, a live stream or a YouTube, but also it just really hammers at home. And it also shows the connections across cultures, across centuries. And I'll show a little bit of that too. So let's go to, oh, you mentioned Star Mist of the World. I, I just wanted to show like a more powerful Thor. This is a little bit more like what we might think of Thor today. You know, that 1800s Thor was, you know, one artist's concept. This is a different artist who made this statue. And But you can see he's got an outstretched arm and an upraised arm. You know, he's got, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, he's got a powerful hammer raised overhead. We'll talk about that. He's smashing some Jotuns. In this case, he's riding in his, his cart that's pulled by goats. But this is Thor um, on the cover of, of my book, Norse Mythology. But it's the same kind of uh, outline pattern, this constellation that I'm about to show you typically plays the god in any culture with the most powerful weapon. Thor is not necessarily the most powerful Norse god or, or the head of the Norse gods. Odin or Odin is, you know, the wisdom god. And, you know, Thor was kind of part of the same people people scholars debate all this but thor had the most powerful weapon for sure the mjolnir the thunder hammer you know this hammer that uh allegedly i mean gungir could theoretically also cause an entire army to be defeated if he yeah. devoted threw it over them yeah yeah that's the so what chance is referring to is the spear of odin or odin and um when he holds it out over the 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 battlefield when he you know he decides which side will will prevail but also when gungnir or the the it, these weapons are made by the dwarves or the dwarfs in in the norse myths it's, it describes the creating of the hammer and the spear it says about odin's spear that it always continues to penetrate to its target so it's like nothing can stop it. No matter what you put in its way, whether shield or helmet or armor, it will not stop Gungnir from, you know, going all the way to whatever Odin wants to spear with this, this mighty spear. But as you can imagine, he's a different constellation. There's a different constellation that wields a spear throughout the world or a rod or a staff. And then there's the constellation that wields uh, the most powerful, typically the most powerful heavenly weapon. Uh, it could be a hammer. It could be an axe. Like I mentioned Shango or Shango of the Yoruba people of Western Africa. He's a thunder God. He has a big beard, just like Thor, just like um, Zeus, just like Jove, just like the God of the Bible is often depicted. Anyway, this is the constellation Hercules. Let me not... Let me let me restrain my uh, tangent wandering that I sometimes tend to do. Let me show this constellation. Why am I showing? Why did I show Thor first? Because there's the there's what I just showed you on the other slide. Look at the characteristics that we pointed out. Powerful weapon overhead. And look in this. This is the outline of Hercules as outlined by H.A. Ray. Don't use Wikipedia because it's horrendous. Don't use 
you know, lots of different outlines of Hercules. It's almost like they're trying to lead you astray so you don't see this outline. But this is how H.A. Ray says, you know, those jumbly lines that they try and show you. First of all, you go out into the night sky and you're like, well, how do I find those jumbly lines? Like I could probably find that almost between any stars. It's such a ridiculous jumble and it doesn't resemble what it's supposed to be. This is the constellation we call Hercules. Does that mean it only plays the character Hercules? No, it plays lots of characters throughout the myths around the world, but it does play Hercules, who is a son of Zeus. Um, this is the it might have even been better if they just called it the mighty one or something more, right. you know, rather than naming it a certain guy, because there's literally possibly dozens or hundreds of mythological characters that could be right. Hercules. Right. But this is the name that's come down to us. There's a few constellations where there's a hero or, a you know, a beautiful Andromeda is associated, you know, Andromeda in the myth of Perseus is associated with Andromeda, the constellation in Perseus, in the myth of Perseus, we have a constellation Perseus. And guess what? That is the constellation that plays Perseus throughout most of the story that he, Perseus actually pops up as a different constellation in some other parts of the story. But anyway, Hercules. So you're right. It is a little confusing, but it's also it's a little bit of remaining evidence that, yes, these figures are based on the stars. And now I hear I'm imagining, you know, Augustine likes to hear his opponents bringing up an argument. Now I hear some professor of, you know, ancient Greece saying, oh, but wait, they named the constellations after the figure. You know, it says at the end, at the end of Hercules's life or Heracles, the gods hung him up in the stars. So that's why they found a constellation and said, oh, no, this is Hercules. Nope. You got it backwards, professors. The stars... This outline, this the concept of a figure who wields a powerful weapon and has a full beard and is jolly and likes to eat like Hercules or Heracles, but has a temper and sometimes, you know, slays his whole family in a fit of rage. And that's why he has to do the 10 or later 12 labors of Hercules. It's like the same pattern over and over. And it's associated with this constellation. This constellation has those characteristics around the world. How? Nobody knows. I believe it's because of an ancient worldwide system that was interrupted by a cataclysm and then was preserved around the world. But anyway, again, I've gone off on a tangent. What I'm trying to show is that the constellation here has a brandishing weapon, one arm overhead. It could be a sword. It could be a club. I'll show you how it could be a hammer. Doesn't look much like a hammer, but I'm going to show you that it is. And then what's his other arm doing? Reaching out forward, outstretched arm, because in the constellation, his outstretched arm Like the way the stars are drawn, the other arm is outstretched. And then he's in the the stars themselves are in this. When you outline it there, this figure in the sky is in this deep lunge with one knee bent and then the other leg extended out some, some, you know, deep knee. Also, it's like a lunging posture with the heel raised exactly like this artist, whoever they were, has depicted Thor. And even this artist has um thrown in the uh the the crown we'll get into that in a second because right next to hercules is a crown but i forgot uh the first thing i'm going to do is show you how this could also be the hammer or like shango or shango of the cultures of africa has an axe i didn't show a picture of shango but i can show you pictures of shango wood carvings from africa where he's standing there and he has an axe or there's two axes 
kind of in the ground in front of him. He has a big beard. He's a, a fire and thunder God. And so this axe or, you know, an axe or a hammer in the stars is going to look pretty much the same. I'm going to show it to you. So I've. David, I'm going to pause you for just one second yeah, and yeah. point out you're talking about Sango. Yeah. The yeah. Etruscans or actually, actually it's really the um, Ombri or the Umbri. Once mm-hmm. we get names of places like Umbria, mm-hmm. these are the Italians prior to the Etruscans. So between mm-hmm. the Etruscans and the Romans, but they had a national God called Sancus or Sangus, hmm. which is basically, you know, the Greeks made this guy the same. They considered Sangus to be the same as Hercules is why I bring him up. Wow. The same guy. Very nice connection chance. And it shows you how C didn't and know G, it. C and G interchange it. between yeah. languages. So Sancus Sank, like yeah, we that's get, right. a, a K you know, even in the names of some G. people, like uh, yeah. Sank, Sancha Theachon, or <laughs> can't say his name, the uh, f- supposedly the Phoenician author who is often, uh, you know, Sank, Sancha Neathon, I think, you know, S A N C, though. If you see that, that root Sank, we're oh, talking yeah, yeah, about yeah, the, C the same speak, guy, yeah, so. Yeah, you're you're absolutely right, and you you're right. You're bringing in black belt level stuff when you. I mean, you start you you easily like flow right into linguistics and philology, but yeah. I, so for listeners who you know might not have taken a, a, a linguistics class, if you think about a g, I never g, did either. <laughs> oh, yeah, I actually did get. Uh, I had a ling, uh, linguistics when we, when I was studying Beowulf actually in. Um, in in a master's program, I had a professor who was a linguistics and he was from England, but a G it's, it's helpful for learning old English, but a G G is exactly the same. You make it the same way as you make a K K K or G G. You just, you just put a voice on the K to make it into a G just like, you know, a P, P, P. if I say, you know, potato, if I just voice that, it becomes a buh. It's the, you make the exact same thing with your lips. So that's really interesting about Sangus and uh, Sangus and Shango. I did not know that. And I did not know um, that the Etruscans or Umbrians uh, or Greeks thought of him as the same as Hercules. But you bring up, a, a, but that actually opens the door to another really important point is ancient authors would go or we'd be talking like like um, Tacitus in the Germania would say things like, oh, well, they have a God that corresponds to Hercules. See, the ancients knew these correspondences and they didn't have any problem with it. They say, oh, yeah, well, the Germans worship mostly Mars and Hercules. And you're like, what are you talking about, Tacitus? The German the German tribes don't worship Mars or Hercules. Those are those are Roman figures. But what he's doing, he's saying, well, their God that corresponds to Thor or Tor or um, their God who corresponds to um, Mars, Tyr or Tew, we understand that they're talking about our, you know, it's the same as our, like Herodotus does this too with ancient Egypt. He'll say, well, you know, Zeus, uh, their God Ammon is the same as our God Zeus or their God Osiris is the same as our God Dionysus. The ancients understood these parallels between, and we have it in ancient writings that they understood and they had no problem with, Oh yeah, it's the same. We're talking about the same characteristics here. Anyway, let me show that was, that was fascinating about the uh, 
Shango Sankus uh, connection. Yeah, I'll, I'll just throw out one more, one okay, more. Yeah. <laughs> Don't you want to see the hammer? We're gonna we're about to drop the hammer, but Thor, or as you correctly mentioned, Tor or Tar, are other ways of pronouncing this name. Makes me wonder if we're talking about like a Age of Taurus figure mm. potentially. You know, processionally speaking, even Tyr, the god of war of the Norse, could be just like an alternate of Thor that then got brought into the myth as his own character as later people started to compile it. So, you know, that that phonetic, though, of Tor or Thor is everywhere again with Hathor, which is a female, which is why or or Terra, um, the British and the Gauls of the ancient British island culture had Taram, the thunder or Toram called the thunderer which matches almost exactly with the phoenician word for thunder tarum you know so it 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 goes all over because when you're talking about phoenician versus ancient british these are very different geographical regions right but something is connecting them so why i mentioned some of the female names with that phonetic of tar or tor is because (laughs) maybe we can get into this an hour too but like you know are there any hints of a sometimes female or a mother Thor, <laughs> the bearded lady, if you will? Because <laughs> yeah, yeah, so, I know I happen so, to know that there are, but we'll yeah, talk so about all that. the yeah, so all the constellations can play male figures or female figures, and you you might think, what well, even Hercules? Like, look at that big square head. See, why do Hercules figures have a full beard often? Because the constellation itself has a big square, very distinctive square shaped head, or as H.A. Ray calls that part of the constellation, the keystone, it, you can see how it's shaped like the keystone in an arch, but it suggests a full beard. And often those figures will wear something on their head to make it even more square. Like Hercules wears that lion kind of skin over his head in addition to sporting a full beard, as does Thor, as does Zeus sport a full beard. But yes, Hercules does play, as, as do all the other constellations, they play both male figures and female figures. In fact, there is a line, I believe it's in the prose Edda or sometimes called the younger Edda or Snorri's Edda that talks about Thor as the son of the earth, the earth goddess, Terra. Or Snor- I'm pretty sure Snorri is where we find that. We only really have the elder Edda or the poetic Edda and the prose Edda. And the prose Edda was like known or discovered or recovered first, but not to get too you know pedantic and into the weeds. Um, I love that those weeds though, because yeah, the weeds are Thor being the son of the earth is like okay, we're we talking about Adam. <laughs> it is, anyway, it is it is very interesting. I I tend to not think Adam is associated with Hercules, but um, the yeah he definitely Adam definitely comes out of the you know from the clay from the dust thou art unto dust thou shalt return. Um, and that whole, that whole story is celestial. I've shown that, you know, multiple times I've made videos about it. You know, he, all the constellations basically come up from the dust. They rise in the East, just like the sun does and return to the dust when they set in the West. Um, they get cast out of the paradise, the garden of the heavens, but um, not to wander too far afield from this. You are correct in saying that the Hercules figure can play a female. Uh, one that I have shown uh, many times is the Gorgons or the Gorgons 
you know, the Medusa, the sisters of Medusa or the companions of Medusa when she's on the island in exile with the serpents, you know, flaring around their head. Uh, if you look at ancient depictions of them, it does look almost like a beard um, or it makes their heads look and they, they stick. I'm actually sharing out. it on screen now. I, okay. pulled, I actually took a picture of that out of your book yeah. because I All was right. like, oh, wow, Hercules and the Gorgon. Yeah, they, I mean, the ancients depict them in this exact posture, but which is a swastika posture, too, interestingly. It is. And they actually, the ancient artwork has sometimes swastikas on it because that is a whirlwind and this is a whirlwind god, uh, or, or this figure is associated with the wind, with the thunder. Um, yeah, but um, getting ahead, we're, we're getting ahead of ourselves a little bit. I do have a <laughs> slide that illustrates that if we if we get to it, we'll see. But the, the <laughs> hammer, again. no, no, this is great. I, I mean, I hope that you're um, listening and finding it uh, finding it to be helpful to show how figures are based on the stars. So how is the hammer? I'm giving away a little secrets here. You know, I don't talk about this all the time. It's in that book and people can read, you know, the whole Norse myths book and uh, if they want, but I will show it now how the hammer or that what looked like a sword, I've erased the outline as H.A. Ray tends to draw it. And I'm going to show you that the there are these four little stars Hopefully, if you're watching this on a smartphone, maybe later you can go back and watch it on YouTube and put it on a big screen because these stars are visible on the screen, but it might be pretty hard to see them on a little tiny screen. So you might want to put it on your, you know, most expensive laptop or desktop or big screen, whatever you can. But I'm going to outline, I'm going to circle. So look above the head of Hercules, that square shaped head. And I'm going to outline that little star, that little star. That little star, these stars are undeniably there in the sky. This is out of Stellarium, which is a free online planetarium app that you can find. And, you know, I'm not putting these stars there. This isn't me uh, telling you that there's four little stars and, and drawing them for you. No, this is out of the planetarium. You can find these stars in the sky. There's four little stars right there. So if we connect those, let me erase those and connect those four stars We've got the head of either an axe or a hammer. And you could draw a line from the, you know, the star that I'm using as the end of his arm. That's the outline as H.A. Ray to the star that was the tip of the sword that I took away. But that's a pretty long handled hammer. And if you know the Thor story really well. Uh, the, the hammer was made as part of this bet between Loki and a a dwarf named Brock or Brocker and um, well Brocker was it was it was a pair of dwarfs anyway they um, Loki turned himself into a fly to um, try and mess up the dwarfs as they worked because he had bet his head against the dwarf uh, that they couldn't make something better than these other gifts that these other dwarfs had made so this the fly was buzzing around trying to mess up their work that was actually Loki but the uh, when they made the the hammer, um, the handle came out too short. But the dwarf said, "Oh, it's almost ruined." But even though the hand, handle is too short, I think it'll still do its job. It's still a wondrous weapon, and it, it turns out to be the most wondrous of all the gifts, anyway, because it never misses its target. It comes back to the hand of the thrower. It smashes things to smithereens, no matter what it hits. 
no matter how hard the thing that it hits, even Jotuns who have heads that are so hard, it never smashes. The hammer will never break. Only the Jotun's head will break. But it has a shortened handle. So there's one other little star. I don't know, you know, for sure which stars they were using to come up with Thor's hammer having a shortened handle. But I suspect this one right here becomes the handle of the hammer. So you could draw his arm this way, take away that other one. And now if you use that star that I circled there in yellow, it's a short handled hammer. Let me draw it in there. So there's your Thor's hammer. I mean, look at, so Shango, you know, I don't know if the, you know, myth from the African thunder God Shango, who has an ax. I don't know if his ax has a short handle in the, in any of the myths. I don't think so. So maybe, you know, you could draw the handle in a couple of different ways, but the fact is this figure could be wielding a sword, could be wielding a club like Hercules or Heracles, could be wielding a hammer like Thor, could be wielding an ax like Shango, could be wielding a thunderbolt like other deities such as Zeus. And I'll show Zeus in a minute. Isn't it an axe with chalk? In a- yeah, chalk has an axe. That's right. Chalk is a rain god of the Maya. And I have shown, in fact, I think I have it later in this slideshow. He's depicted in this exact posture. Like it lines up with the stars of Hercules that, are, that we're showing here. Like in an 8th century cup that you can find in the museum of, uh, uh, which museum is it in? It's in the Met in New York City. I still haven't gone to actually physically see that one. I really want to, but I just, I want to mention this crown and it's important for chalk later on if we get to it, but I don't know why this 1800s artist puts a crown there. Like I said, I don't know if Thor being described as wearing a crown anywhere, but I suspect that artist knew some constellations because the artist, first of all, does this posture exactly like the constellation or very reminiscent of the constellation. And Right next to Hercules, and important in many myths around the world, is this constellation Corona Borealis, the crown of the north, the northern crown. And it has basically, I've outlined it here with seven stars, but sometimes, in fact, in Stellarium, they don't show the one on the far left. They only show six. So here's one, two, three. There's one right there in the middle. Four, five. There's the six stars, and then there's a seventh. In the Bible, There's you know, God reaches out for seven, seven candles in the candelabra in Revelation. This is, this is where it comes from right here. Corona Borealis, that's the crown with the six stars or seven stars. You know, different myths use different numbers, like the Hydra has nine heads. Other myths, there's a you know, a serpent or a dragon with seven heads. It's the same constellation. Anyway, Red Rose ahead. in the chat, one of our, our viewers has confirmed that Sango's axe has a short handle. Not surprising. Nice. Very nice. Thank you for that. Um, yeah, I'd be interested in the reference. Like, um, you know, where, where, are you, where are you finding that? Like, I'm not, I'm not calling it into question. I'm saying, hey, I'd be interested in a lot of these myths that were handed down and not written down until let's say the 1800s, like a lot of the Native American myths that were uh, first written down in the 1600s, 1700s. I've done some work with the the Mohawk Nation with their creation myth, and we use some of the early 
you know, we want to try and find like the earliest time that it was written down and try and go, you know, to the earliest sources that we can. So it's interesting if Shango has a short handled ax, like which myth does that come out in and where do we find it written down? Um, or, you know, where's the evidence that we can point to? Because all that evidence is helpful to proving, look, this is a worldwide system. It is, you know, the, 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 the sad thing is that, and I put some disclaimers in my Norse myths book. Look, I'm half Norwegian. My, my grandfather came from Norway. The Norse myths, I grew up with the Norse myths. I had a book about the Norse myths. Like I knew, hey, that's part of my heritage. The sad thing is it's like used for, you know, some people uh, that glom onto it and get tattoos about it are pushing racism or white supremacy. Well, this is this exact same system that gives us the characters in the Old Testament of the Bible or the, you know, exact same system that's used by the nations of Africa. This is a worldwide system. It is not exclusive or racist in any way. It is, it actually connects all people rather than dividing all people. So anyway, I have noticed though, that the, the followers self-identifying of Odin or Thor pagans can sometimes be just as touchy as Christians when it comes to showing the universality of their thing. And again, that's why I opened with the preface of like, this doesn't take away the cultural significance and uniqueness of your version of it. We're just showing that we're all under the same sky here and that that is the real scripture. Well, yeah, look, you're bringing up the, the, like, like we said earlier, my argument is that this ancient system was overthrown by, uh, by oppressors and oligarchs and an oligarchical system, like a, an oppressive system. And, you know, I'll come right out and say that the Nazis were part of the, they're, they are part of that oppressive system. You've got in the Ukraine right now, you've got, you know, Azov battalion sporting, clearly sporting Nazi symbolism, Nazi tattoos. You know, the Russians are showing captured Azov battalion fighters with Nazi tattoos all over their body and sometimes Thor hammer rings and things like that. So it's, it's despicable, but it's actually, it's a twisting, it's an inverting of the ancient system. I would argue that the the Nazi project was an oligarchical, it's, it's a feudal project that, you know, the SS was modeled on the Teutonic Knights and it's part of the, the, um, like the, the exclusive and oligarchical um, approach as opposed to the ancient approach that is supposed to be uplifting the people. Uh, it's a, it's an inversion. Anyway, hopefully, hopefully that makes sense. What I just said, it, it would probably take a couple hours to really um, do it justice. But by talking about Thor, I am not endorsing people who twist it into something racist. Obviously that's what I'm trying to say. So, um, any uh, any comments on this slide before I move on to uh, I think the next slide actually shows some Zeus. Yeah, here's so just I don't know where we are in the hours and I know you have to like make a break to the uh, to the second hour. Yeah, we'll do that in just a maybe. Yeah, let me show another slide or two. Yeah, let me show how Zeus connects to the same system. So this is a vase that's actually in a museum in Germany. Interestingly, that we were just talking about, you know, look, the, 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 
the people of every land, like these are gifts, I believe, like all the people are gifts. You know, every every baby who's born into any country is a gift of the gods or a gift from God or a gift from, you know, the divine realm, however you want to think about it. It is a miracle. Every baby is a miracle. The people of the land, these are these are these myths are for the the benefit and blessing of the people and, and all the all the other gifts of heaven, the the resources of a nation, the the woods or the you know the oil under the ground or the gold under the ground, they're all given by nature or the gods, and the most precious resource is the people. So I'm not against the people of any culture. The the people have been terribly abused by the by the oligarchical twisters of this system. So anyway, um, that's all I'll say about that for right now. This is a vase from or a, you know an ancient Greek vessel piece of pottery with uh, some artwork on it. It's been kind of flaked off. So I'm going to, Oh, there it is. It's in Munich. Um, München, I think, I don't know how you say it in German, but we say Munich, but it's been flaked off, but I'm going to just fill in. Zeus is wearing like this shawl kind of over his shoulders, but he's got a deep knee bend. You can hopefully see it there. This is how it probably used to look. And that's not just me because I'm going to show you an illustration that wasn't done by me that you can find on Wikimedia or Wikipedia in the public domain, drawing this out and Zeus is in that posture, but we know it's Zeus. First of all, he's got a thunderbolt over his head in one upraised arm, but also either the ancient artist or the, you know, an ancient person who knew how to write has written the name of Zeus right there, you know, right next to his nose, it says Zeus. So, that that well, it, it uh, looks like it says use. <laughs> it does. It does. <laughs> that, that's actually a, a Greek letter Z is what I believe that I to be. But uh, it but shows right. how between yes, languages and alphabets you have that you know where U is yad hey vav hey. It's very similar. Yeah, you're right. Look at that U. Look at the in the Zeus. Look at the third letter. It's a V. Like, I mean. It's very, very interesting, especially to someone who makes those linguistic connections chance um, like you. I mean, I, it's great. I, I, uh, I think you're, you're right, but we cannot, we cannot argue that that's not Zeus and we can't argue that he's not in that same posture because here's a drawing of what's on that vase and look at the, it's the exact same outline as the constellation Hercules. In in this case, um, there's the there's the name that we were talking about. In case anyone, but there's the same thing with the raised heel, the deep knee bend, the um, brandishing a weapon overhead. In this case, it's a thunderbolt and the outstretched arm, right there. Look, it's like why is Zeus reaching out and touching the wing of his opponent there? Because in the constellation, that's what the constellation does. And who's his opponent? We know it's Typhon. Typhon is this um, most powerful, one of the most powerful enemies that Zeus ever had to face. And look at how Typhon is depicted. He's got like a torso and upper body of a mortal, you know, or a man with a beard. But he's got like two serpents coming out of his waist. Always interesting to follow the thread of snakes for legs, you know, wherever they show up. Yep. And they show up a lot. And who is it? It's the constellation just below Hercules, that is the constellation Ophiuchus. And why is it two snakes for legs? Well, look, look at the constellation Ophiuchus. People aren't 
necessarily familiar with these constellations. And like I said, Wikipedia won't help you very much because their outlines are horrific. But this is the outline from H.A. Ray. Like I said, one of the most important writers of all time. He shows this is the outline of Ophiuchus. It looks like a tombstone or an obelisk in the central body with two little legs below it. It's like a, a rectangle with a triangle on top and then two serpents on either side. The name Ophiuchus means the serpent handler or the serpent bearer. You might think about in the Bible where, you know, in in one of the epistles of Paul, he says they will be able to handle serpents and not be, I, I think it's one of the epistles of Paul. And, um, anyway, picking up serpents and not being, uh, you know, harmed by the serpent is uh, that Ophiuchus looks like he's holding a serpent, but the, the serpent halves on the left, it's a tail on the right, it's a head. Um, the serpent halves can play lots of different things and they do in different myths and different artwork, but I'm going to just take away the fainter legs down below the central body and show you how you could also envision that as the, you know, the torso and the head that just ends in two serpents. See, there's the two halves, the two legs, and there's the two legs of Typhon and as you point out, there's, you know, like serpents for legs. We find them around the world. Here's a, uh, a wood cut from 1565 uh, showing. It's a, it's a book of natural history. So it shows all the different animals and creatures that you find around the world. And of course, they had to include a mermaid. <laughs> Look at how the mermaid. Look at her body. And it ends in two tails. I thought that was the Starbucks logo, David. It is. The mother of monsters. It's the exact Starbucks logo, but look at how her hands are. Now, let's just look at Ophiuchus again. There's her two tails. There's the two tails from Ophiuchus. Look over at Ophiuchus. Look at the mermaid. Look at how her one arm, there's tail number one. There's tail number one on Ophiuchus. Look at her arm there. It's kind of touching the top of her tail. (laughs) Look at the arm on Ophiuchus. Oh, on that side, it's almost at the top of the tail. Look at her other arm. There's tail number two, tail number two on Ophiuchus. There's her other arm. Oh, it's down kind of almost like on the thigh portion of her fishy leg there. And there's the other arm of Ophiuchus. Like, I don't know who was doing this in 1565, but these woodcuts are very revealing that they are connected to the constellations. Anyway, I put that in to show Zeus is fighting Typhon. Zeus is Hercules, quite clear. Typhon is Ophiuchus. I I just showed you some evidence that Typhon is Ophiuchus. And in fact, Zeus in in the stories, in the myths, you can check the ancient sources, Zeus throws thunderbolts at Typhon, but they basically just bounce off. Typhon cannot be defeated by Zeus's thunderbolts. So how does he finally manage to defeat Typhon? Do you know? And it's no shame if you don't. It's just, it's kind of I can't, I can't an remember. obscure point. It's okay. He has to slam a mountain down on top of Typhon. He buries him under a mountain. <laughs> oh, yeah, a that's right there in the mountain. constellation. How could I? It's forget? right there in the constellation. Look how Ophiuchus could look like a mountain, or it even has like a triangle on top. He slams a mountain down, and that mountain, according to myth or tradition, is Mount Etna, A E T N A, in Italy. It's associated like. Typhon is buried under Mount Etna, which is a volcano that periodically erupts. And they say, oh, Typhon, you see, Zeus never killed him. He just imprisoned Typhon under the mountain. And every now and then Typhon gets restless and belches up some lava. Well, the mountain is Ophiuchus. Ophiuchus is a mountain. That's why 
Thor was depicted on top of a mountain. That's why the God of the Bible meets Moses on top of the mountain, as I explained in my online course. Anyway, this shows very strongly that the characteristics of Thor, you know, a thunderbolt, full beard, are the characteristics of Zeus, and it's worldwide. Here's here's some other um, figures. This is Indra. He's a rain god of India. Look at his outline. There's Chalk. He's a rain god of uh, the Maya. This is this is that cup in the Met Museum, and Chalk is in for sure the exact same posture. And you can even see his axe if you look at it. The the artist on this cup from the 600s or 700s, you know, before Columbus, has that axe pointing down towards his lower heel instead of up over his head. But still, that Chalk is in the same outline as Hercules and he's a rain god he's a rain god um oh and look I love this this is a uh a, a comic book um th- these three authors I think the first name Simonson I've, I've forgotten his first name but because I'm not a comic expert but that's some fantastic illustration look at the Thor look at the and Thor. that's Jormungandr or how yeah, do you say that's it? right. The, the Midgard serpent, the, the serpent which is basically of the world. Typhon. It's probably Typhon. That's right. Just like just like Zeus has his most powerful serpent associated um, enemy, and the the world serpent, and I would say also potentially connected to the Milky Way, which encircles the heavens. And and Ophiuchus and Thor and 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 Zeus are right next to the Milky Way. So yes. You're absolutely right. That is the Midgard serpent, the Jormungandr. Um, and uh, there's, I mean, like the outlines are just pretty. Uh, I, I mean, I love this comic book illustration there. And it, I used it in, uh, I used it in a, a an Instagram post I just did. But here's a, this is an Icelandic manuscript showing Thor. Look, they've got almost the same posture, not quite as uh, dramatic, but he's got an outstretched arm. He's got a, hammer it looks more like a pickaxe or something ice maybe he's going to go ice climbing there but he's got you know the the legs are sort of in that posture you could argue and there's kind of a midgard serpent looking like a ribbon or something coming off of his shoulder i don't know what <laughs> what this uh but it says at the very first line if you look at on the left it says asa thor that the asa is he's one of the asa guards the you know the icier gods the Aesir gods and the Thor, that word is that letter is called a thorn in old English. It's a, it's the TH letter, but actually in Norwegian or Scandinavian, they, they typically pronounce the TH not like th as much as like to like my name, Matheson, which is Norwegian. If I meet someone from Norway, they say, I say, hi, I'm, my name is David Matheson. They say, oh, Matheson, you mean Matheson. That's how we say your name, you know, Matisse. When demonstrating the interchangeability of phonetically T, T, H, D. Yeah, 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 for sure. And, and that process, um, you know, like linguistic historians show that process taking place in English, like how S- Scottish still retains more of the old English pronunciation. They still roll their R's. They still say things like garage and, uh, I think some thick Scottish accents, like they say kirk instead of church. The the 
the the kirk the k sound hasn't turned into a ch like it did down south. Uh, you know what's uh, interesting too is in the druidical system you brought up Asa Thor, Iser yeah. Thor. Yeah, Iser is a name for God to the Etruscans all the way over in Italy. In the druidical system, in their order of gods with their goddesses, the top god, top G is Iser or Aesir. And according to Godfrey Higgins in his early 1800s book on the Celtic Druids, that this god Iser is also connected to the word log, like L-O-G-H, which actually means like similar yeah. to that which kindles a fire. So we have the yeah. word log. Yeah, yeah. But also there's that's god, basically the Greek logos. Named, log. yeah, and there's also a god named Lug or Lug or uh, in exactly Irish and celtic yeah that's um that's right yeah this is uh look this is an ancient worldwide system and the characteristics hold around the world i i do do you have us up or do you have the slideshow up because i'm think, still look we're still looking at that really funky yeah, <laughs> icelandic funky thor. thor you know yeah, who looks more like, like a craftsman than a warrior which i think is an important point that that hammer is also like mm. Vulcan's hammer, the, yeah, the maker, yeah. because this is primordial chaos in the vortex that is this Hercules constellation. Whence all things come. Very true. Yeah, you're you're making like, you know, beyond PhD level connections, Chance. But I totally agree. I wanted to show before we leave the first hour. But I think what do I roll in? You know, let's just roll through it. Uh, there was an okay. extremely generous super chat from Peter. So thank you, Peter. You just uh, bought everybody. Peter. Peter Shell just bought everybody the second <laughs> hour on YouTube and we'll just keep rolling through it. Wow. Peter, thank you. I know Peter. Um, I've met Peter. Peter's fantastic. And uh, I really appreciate that. Okay, Very well, generous. Well, um, yeah, Peter has come to some of the events. I've got one coming up uh, in uh, exactly two months from tomorrow, actually. But let me... I did want to, so thank you, Peter. That is, um, and I, I'm, I think Peter's going to be at that, that one in Utah, but there's still slots available. And I've got a, uh, I've got a little blurb that shows the details of that, but uh, I wasn't sure if that came next or this slide. So this slide, this is a very interesting story that was written down later in the 1200s by an Icelandic monk, in fact, you know, a, a nominally at least Christian. Um, but it's a story, it's about Olaf Tryggvason or Olaf Tryggvason, um, who, who's credited with Christianizing Norway. He was a Norwegian king. And this story is told how Olaf defeated uh, this, you know, a, a king who worshipped the old gods, whose name was Rod the Strong, R-A-U-D was his name, Rod, this king, Rod. And that king was basically tortured to death by Olaf. Olaf was like, you want to get baptized? You want to get tortured? And the king was like, torture. And, and so they like shoved a snake down his throat and then stuck a hot iron down his throat. And that was the end of Rod the Strong, which is interesting. The name Rodna is a goddess who's married to Thor in Finnish mythology. We may have a chance to talk about her later, but. Is that where we get the idea of a hot rod? No, man. It's a kidding. bad linguistic pun, Chance. I'm sorry. <laughs> Boo. <laughs> That's great, man. You're a you're like I said earlier before we started recording, you are a connection machine. You you are uh, seeing connections that are really fantastic and I appreciate it. It gets dangerous. You turn half schizophrenic. 
I, I appreciate your bad puns, um, <laughs> but uh, this is a, this is a painting of, you know, Vikings and their Viking ship. But, the, but in this story of Olaf, King Olaf, who's going around Christianizing the, you know, Norway in around 1000, the year 1000, Christianity kind of got up to Scandinavia last uh, out of Europe. And then it got to Iceland even laster. Like Iceland was pretty much connected with Norway or, you know, it was mostly people from what's today Norway that settled in Iceland, we believe. But uh, Iceland was way out there. So the Christians got there last. And that's where the Eddas were preserved. And that's where this story was uh, written down about Olaf, who had lived a couple hundred years before. So this is kind of like the story has, you know, all of this mythical kind of embellishment on it. But it's a very revealing story, I believe, because it shows this tension that we were actually talking about between the old ways the old gods were actually protectors of the people against tyranny. I argue that this, this tyrannical system is a twisting and a, a, a rejection of the ancient system that was handed down to humanity in the old myths. So this I'm story, Buddy Balderson just commented, you're supposed to spit on the ground when you say Olaf's name. <laughs> He's a hard uh, carrying heathen himself. Okay, well, um, I can't but, do that indoors, Ben. Sorry, well, we don't live you know, in dirt floor huts like you. Well, you know, <laughs> it's actually interesting because, yeah, Olaf, uh, you know, this monk is um, purportedly celebrating, and you know, he's kind of painting all this in a positive light. Oh, you know, Olaf went and, uh, or, uh, well, sorry, it's the 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 monk's name is Atar, not. Um, not Olaf. Olaf is this Christianizing king. Um, so you're right. But this 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 text from like 200 years after Olaf died um, is purportedly by a Christian, you know, painting all this in a good light. But this little incident that I'm going to describe actually shows that the people who remembered, they realized something good had been lost. And this this story doesn't actually paint Olaf in the best light, even though supposedly like this whole manuscript is celebrating what Olaf did. Oh, he, you know, he tortured the heathens and made them give up their, you know, worship of those false idols and blah, blah, blah. Like the, the text itself seems pro-Christian and anti-Norse gods. But this little incident that I'm going to show is almost like the author is saying, let me just slip this in here and see if anybody notices, because maybe this author you know, could only do this in kind of a little um, kind of hinting way. So this in this story, Olaf is sailing his ship called the Long Dragon down the coast, uh, the Norwegian coast. From It says, you know, from north to south, he was sailing. And as he was sailing along, and, and he built this ship, the Long, the Long Dragon, based on, there's a long serpent, based on... Uh, and we already talked about long and lung and uh, the last time dragon dragon boats. Yeah. The dragon boat. It was, ba- it was powdered on Rod's ship. Rod, the strong had a dragon ship or a serpent ship. And Olaf's was the long serpent. Cause it had like, I think 34 sets of rowers. It was really fast. It was a long, like you had to have a lot of space for that many sets of rowers. I think it was 34, but anyway, he's going down the coast and he's, he's very proud of his ship. And as they're going along the coast, they see up on a cliff, 
up on, just like we saw, you know, Thor up on a cliff in that, that illustration. He sees a, a man, a, a red bearded, you know, youthful looking, strong looking guy who's like waving to him like, hey, can I catch a ride? And so Olaf says, eh, hold on, let's give that fine fellow up there on that cliff a ride. So the the man comes down, gets on the cliff, uh, gets on the cliff, sorry, gets on the boat and starts, uh, you know, he's just a jolly fellow. And all the, the crew is like, man, who is this guy? He's, he's buffed. Like this guy's been working out. And he's like, you know, you, you uh, crew and followers of Olaf, you're, you're not much of men like they used to have, like in the days of Rod the Strong. Like, I don't think any of you could beat me at wrestling or not even two or three of you. And they all start like trying to wrestle him and he just like throws him around. And they're like, he's like, what a pathetic specimens. Is this what, is this what the country has come to? Come on, Olaf. I thought you had better, you know, warriors than this on your famous ship and everybody's embarrassed. And, and Olaf says, well, maybe you could tell us, since you seem to know so much, why don't you tell us some stories of the old times? And so here, I, I actually wrote a blog post about this a long time ago, and I actually quoted it. So I didn't want to say it right. The king said to him, well, tell us if you can some tales of olden time. This is from this manuscript from, uh, from Iceland, obviously been translated into English by some, you know, olden time. Somebody wants to kind of make it sound like a fairy tale or something. I, you know, I don't think the Icelandic necessarily you know, however it was written, I don't speak Icelandic, although I did have to learn some old English, which is very similar to Icelandic. Um, when you get called. that the Etruscans yeah. called the, what we often say as Aesir, they called mm-hmm. the top god Iser. Mm-hmm. It was more pronounced like Iser or Iser. Yeah. Yeah. It makes Iceland a whole different mm-hmm. ball game in terms of the name. Also that that I-C-E is not that far off from I-S-E, E-C, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. whence well, it comes the name of Jesus as well. Mm, very good point. And if you even today, if you if you have a domain name that's from Iceland, it'll be dot is. And also, if you if you're a real if you're really into Norse myths, then you will know that one of the premier scholars of Norse mythology is Carolyn Larrington of England. She is a like an Oxford scholar, like a very respected a scholar of Norse mythology. She's translated the Elder Edda. I really like her translation of the Elder Edda. And if you listen to her, you can search for her on YouTube and she's gone on podcasts and uh, before she's generous with her time and, and knowledge. And she pronounces the, I always growing up thought of them as the Aesir gods. And, you know, my grandfather from Norway, um, you know, he would help me with the pronunciation, but really it's not like the Norse gods were, uh, still taught or, or, um, you know, it, it was Christianized back in like the one thousands, but, um, but yeah, I always thought of it as Acer. but if you listen to Carolyn Larrington, uh, she pronounces it icier. She, she pronounces it that way. Makes you uh, wonder if the whole ACE as like the number one in a card set comes mm-hmm. from the fact that the Druids were t- calling the top of God of all the, that emanated all the other gods, Acer or Acer. I don't know. Um, I will say again, you are a connection machine, man. I, I, I think well, there's plenty great. of esotericism in a deck of cards. Oh, yeah, you know that much. Sure. Yeah, that's for sure. That's for sure. So, um, yeah, I mean, you can even think of just the four suits themselves. We've got four seasons of the year. The, the um, anyway, and and the number 13, 12 and thirteen are extremely important in the in the 
you know, celestial cycle systems. But let me read this. Um, I got off track by yeah, no problem. saying, uh, because this, this hints at, hey, something has been lost. And, you know, Olaf and all the, all the things you did uh, may not be as virtuous as, you know, the Christians are, are, are this purportedly Christian monk is writing this purportedly praise, praise of Olaf in the life of Olaf Trugevason. Um, but he's putting in these things like, well, here comes this stranger from the cliff who's got a red beard and, uh, you know, flings around <laughs> Olaf's men and says, you guys are, you guys are hardly worthy to be even, you know, called the sons of Vikings. What a pathetic bunch. And then Olaf says, well, well, tell me if you can some tales of the old days. And then the stranger says, I will begin then, king or sire, answered he, with this land near where we are sailing, right here, where you're sailing by. It was inhabited of yore by giants who all chanced to come to a sudden end at one and the same time. They were all, you know, finished in one big, you know, battle, except for two, both women, these giant women. Afterwards, when people came from the east to colonize the country, so when, you know, it used to just be giants here, then something wiped out all the giants except these two female giants. And then when the people, when the men and women, you know, ordinary mortals showed up, these two giant women lorded it over them, it says. They they troubled them and straightened their condition or straightening their condition. The word straightening is like from a straight jacket, mean tightening. It's like they were imposing austerity on the people. They were squeezing the people. They were making them do with less, which is exactly what this, you know, neoliberal system, which is, as Michael Hudson says, neo-feudalism. It's like the 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 un- the, the the system that doesn't lift people up, but instead says, no, you, you have to, you have to live a narrower and narrower and squeeze down life. So these two giants were I like, do you call it neoliberal? Cause it's like neo Lieber, all the new <laughs> Lieber, the new Bacchus, you know what I mean? Anyway, we, continue. We could talk about neoliberalism for two hours because it's like one, yeah, of my, right. <laughs> one of my other things that I get passionate about because it's what's it's what's devouring the people today. So these it's like these giants were devouring the people or straightening their conditions, narrowing their conditions, squeezing down like the straits of Gibraltar. That's what the straightening. If you look at the word in in the text that I, I have it a little tiny there, but if you blow it up on your screen, um, straightening their condition, making the people just suffer. The evil lasted until the inhabitants resolved to call upon Redbeard for aid. So what finally ended the reign of these, these, you know, oppressive giant women, the people finally said, I know what to do. Let's call upon Redbeard. Who, who's that? Well, he says, so I grasped my, my hammer. So this is like the first time in the whole story that this stranger who we all suspect is, you know, could this be Thor, Thor? typically has a red beard um, in uh, in the myths. And if you look at like the, the book I grew up with, Dolaire's book of Norse myths, which is wonderful, you know, has Thor with a big red beard. So they called upon red beard and I grasped my hammer and put an end to those giants. He says, uh, I grasped my hammer and slew both the giants and the people have continued to call upon me for aid in time of need from that day, O king, until now, 
The people called upon Redbeard. That's me, by the way, just in case you don't know. And I grabbed my hammer just in case you don't know who I am. And I made short work of those giants so that the people be freed from the oppressors. And the people, whenever they needed me from that day until this, they, they just called my name. And Thor in the, in the Eddas and in the ancient myths, he shows up. If you call his name, he shows up no matter where he is. If he's off in Jotunheim smashing Jotuns, and the other Aesir gods are uh, in trouble and they're like, oh, I wish Thor was here. Okay, let's call his name. Boom. He shows up and he says, who do you want me to, you know, whose head do you want me to bust open? And um, there's, there's lessons in all of this for our lives today. Okay. The gods, the, these uh, don't let giant women rule your society. Don't, don't let you don't be oppressed by, look, we've got the twin giants. There's actually a speech by Martin Luther King that I wanted to, I, I just remembered just now. Oh yeah. I was going to put in, he talks about like the three giants of racism, poverty, and war or something like that, that will, you know, the people won't, the people won't live up to their full potential until we slay the three giants. Uh, I think he said that, and I think it's in his beyond war speech, very famous speech that he gave exactly a year to the day he was killed exactly a year to the day after giving that speech, which um, I do not think was a coincidence. He was not murdered by a lone nut there's um, William Pepper, who's a attorney, a, a lawyer um, has written a series of books showing that the, there was a plot to kill Martin Luther King. And they did it on that day, that anniversary of that speech for a reason. Everybody said, Dr. King, don't speak against Vietnam. Stick to just talking about civil rights and racism. And he said, no, 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 they're all connected. And I'm going to give this speech. And he did. And then they killed him one year to the day after that. But I think he talks about the the, the three giants of racism, poverty, and war. I could be mistaken about that. I, I forgot to look it up. Uh, I meant to do that. But anyway. That's a good weave. Yeah, these giants that oppress the people. It's like we could say the twin, the giants of austerity and neoliberalism today or whatever you want to, you know, the giants of oppression, oppressing these giants obviously oppress the people and the gods, they're available to call upon. This ancient system is for your healing and it's for the healing of society and it's for the smashing of those giants that are oppressing the people. And he says, yeah, if we could accept the syncretism view, then that really helps with the racism. You know, <laughs> we're all under yeah, the same yeah. sky. We have all the same traditions what, with our yeah. own cultural variations, but you know, we're talking about the same one sky father. Like I tend to think that heaven is the sky. The sky father is the whole sky. You know, that's if you want to consider God or the most high <laughs> to be the all of all of our consciousness in, in one ocean rather than each of our individual drops. Well, in an as above, so below sense, the sky is literally that it's the psychodrama of all humankind visible to all humankind. It's amazing. Yeah. It's the pattern. It's the pattern that um, gets Potter, father pattern. That's right. Pattern Potter. Um, and, and Jupiter, Zeus Potter, uh, the, the name Jupiter of the Romans I've, read this isn't my argument that it is zeus you know the z becomes a j and it becomes jupiter jupiter and pitar is father in sanskrit man you are (laughs) i didn't know that one you are you i i mean i love i love these connections because i'm gonna have to uh explore 
explore further, but for sure, these, look, this is a universal, it should, like I always say, this should connect us all. This is given to all people around the world, this system. It's, it just, it takes on different outward trappings. You know, the, I always say, you know, in, in India, the, the gods, when they're in goddesses, when they're happy with something a mortal does, they rain down flowers, you know, onto, onto the heroes, uh, like in the Mahabharata, when the gods are happy, flowers come falling down from the sky. Well, you'd never expect Zeus to rain down flowers on, you know, on the people in Norse myths. They just have a different feel, but it doesn't matter. They have this, it's the same underlying truths, just they, they're going to wear, you know, Norse outfits in Scandinavia and, India outlets in ancient outfits in in ancient India, and they're just going to look different on the outside, but it's the same truths. And the truths are for the healing of trauma, including at the individual level, but also at the societal level, as this story, interestingly, I think illustrates, I thought, well, I'm, you know, if I'm going to talk about Thor, I'm going to bring in this story because even though it's not an ancient myth, this story, you know, as far as we know, was written down in 1200, but Uh, Let me just finish reading it because he says, and so the people continue to call on me. You know, after I got rid of those evil giants, the people continue, they've continued to call on me from that day until this, O king, until now that you have greatly wasted all my friends in a way that warrants vengeance or that merits vengeance. So the people have had, you know, they they could call upon the gods to help them or, you know, the the powers to help them against oppression until you, Olaf, came along and got rid of all my friends. And that was a dirty thing you did, Olaf. It merits vengeance. And then it says that, you know, the stranger with a scornful grin plunged overboard, swift as a bolt, and was never seen again. So it was like a visitation from Thor saying, Olaf, you're screwing up and hey, men that are following Olaf, you're, you'd be a lot better off if we were still following the ancient system that this literalist Christian project that is going around the world, stamping out the ancient system wherever it can find it. When they got to the Americas, they promptly began burning all the Maya texts. There's only a few Maya texts left, codexes, it is a project of stamping out the ancient wisdom in order to what? Straighten the people, put them in a narrower and narrower condition. So there's a social aspect to this or a societal aspect to this. And I think it's just a powerful story. And it's like, was, <laughs> this monk puts this in there like, hey, you know, I'm writing what sounds like kind of a propaganda piece, but let me just sneak this in here. It's like, <laughs> this this monk is like, yeah, Olaf and what he did, not good. I don't know. I mean, it's just, it's a, it's, it's, it certainly kind of undermines the rest of the text. If you read the text as, yeah, what everything Olaf did was great. He got rid of paganism, so-called. So, um, yeah. I want to read, when, you know, I just want to make a, a quick read of, uh, not a very long quote, but this is from, because I want to demonstrate how, <laughs> you know, another part of this system that shows the Christianity, pre-existing Christianity. So this is from a book called 
in English, I believe the translation would be on the Germanic gods. It's like De Dies Germanis by Elias. Okay, could I could I un um could I take my screen down so that it could be back to our faces so I can see? Yeah, buddy. Yeah, okay, you're safe to do that. Okay, it's not a very long quote, but this is a guy Schedius or Schedius writing in 1648. Interesting name because there's uh, Greek mythology characters with that name. So a German scholar, Elias, (laughs) that's Helios. (laughs) Anyway, he he uh, he says that the Druids seek studiously for an oak tree. Let me point out that the oak is sacred to Thor and Odin. Seek studiously for an oak tree, large and handsome, growing up with two principal arms in the form of a cross beside the main stem upright. If the two horizontal arms are not sufficient adapted to the figure, they fasten a cross beam to it. This tree they consecrate in this manner. Upon the right branch, they cut in the bark, in fair characters, the word hesus. H-E-S-U-S. Upon the middle or upright stem, the word tarmus. Tarmus, that's the Thor that we were talking about. That's thunder. Upon the left branch, Bellinus. Over this, above the going off of the arms, they cut the name of God. Tau, or Thou, like the letter T, or an X, a cross. (laughs) All under the same repeated Tau. So, that's the whole quote. But just showing that, like, in their sacred groves, they had an oak tree that they made into a sacred cross. And they had this trinity going on with Jesus and Tau and Tarmus and Bellinus. And anyway, pretty good stuff. Uh, it's from 1648. Yeah, it's very interesting. So the cross is definitely identified with a specific constellation. I, I show it in the Celestial Bible Tour, but... Um, and Jesus, the son of the Most High, is not associated with the same constellation as the constellation of the Most High. So, um, yeah, that is uh, that is really interesting. And you find crosses, you know, in iconography or artwork in the New World, so-called New World, you know, the, the Maya. Uh, and it is, associated, it is associated with a specific constellation. And the constellation is Ophiuchus. So um, I, I could show it, um, in fact. But also what you read at the very beginning is talking about the oak tree. And um, obviously the oak is sacred to the Druids. And I don't believe the passage said it, but Zeus had a sacred oak at Dodona. So Zeus is associated with the oak and with the eagle. Zeus is associated with the eagle. And uh, those are all because of constellations that are near the Zeus constellation that I've shown, I think pretty conclusively to be the Hercules constellation. And there's an Eagle right nearby it. And uh, the Oak gets into, you know, you wanted to talk a little bit about these sacred trees or Yggdrasil, the, the world tree. Uh, there's trees in myths around the world. The most, one of the most ancient epics one of the earliest texts that we have still today is the Gilgamesh epic and Gilgamesh and his kind of twin companion Enkidu go to chop down the cedar tree that's at the center of the world. There's a lot of trees getting chopped down or Yggdrasil at Ragnarok breaks, you know, cracks, uh, but we'll and be then o- Osirian characters getting trapped in a tree or trapped in trees. That's right. I mean, that yeah. happens to Merlin. It happens, uh, Yes. It happens to Odysseus. It's like all over the place. 
Osiris the, uh, is the main yeah, one. Yeah, Odysseus sleeps in the trunk of an olive tree. The um, uh, as part of like his rebirth, basically when he washes up on the shores of Phaiakia or Phiasia. The um, the the Mohawk uh, creation story. So I did a whole series of workshops working our way through the Mohawk creation story and hearing it in the original Mohawk language as well. Um, uh, or the, the, it's the Iroquois creation story, the five nations later became the six nations. Uh, those are all on my website and on my YouTube channel. Um, all 10 of those. And we're not all the way through it yet, but there's a, uh, there's a body that gets uh, put up in a tree, uh, a dead, you know, like a dead uh, ancestor that gets put up in the high branches of a tree. And then the descendants go to consult from the, the dead uh, parent or father. So this pattern is worldwide and it's associated with the same. These are very important constellations that I'm showing, as you can imagine, you know, Thor and Odin. Um, and as we saw in that interesting 1800s illustration, which is not, you know, it's not particularly evidence one way or the other, but that illustration showed Thor on a cliff rock with a kind of burning bush looking bush at the tip of the cliff. What is that? Well, that's an 1800s wood carving, but it's like they knew the celestial or they knew something because look at the way they depicted Thor. And, and, you know, the God of the Bible is associated with a mountain with a burning bush. And Thor is actually associated with a Rowan tree that saves him in one of the myths that is recorded in the Eddas in Thor's trip to, uh, uh, it wasn't to, uh, Got to point out that King Arthur, Arthur also yeah. is associated with the Rowan tree in that yeah, mythology. Rowan, Rowan tree. And there's a goddess. So Thor's wife is named Siv or Siv. And, uh, but there's a Finnish God who's basically the, the, the same characteristics as Thor and his wife's name. One of her names is Radna or Raudna which is very interesting because we were talking about Raud, the strong that was killed by having a serpent shoved down his throat and a hot poker shoved down his throat. And Radna, the goddess, who's married to the Thor figure in Finnish, her name means Rowan in Finnish. So she's a Rowan tree. And Thor, I heard this actually on a, it was a really good uh, YouTube video about Thor. I, sh I should give it credit, but now I don't remember what it was. But anyway, people can search for it. But, uh, yeah, the Rowan tree, like these are stories um, that I mean, I can picture it in my mind from the book that I had growing up from Dallaire's book of Norse myths. It's a wonderful it's called Norse Gods and Giants, this book that I grew up with. And it shows Thor, um, the, the Jotun. Um, uh, it's like a female Jotun sends like a big river down to drown Thor. And he's like, ah, how am I going to get through this river? And he grabs onto a friendly Rowan tree, which is very similar to Odysseus after the, he gets swallowed by Charybdis, his ship gets swallowed by the whirlpool Charybdis. He gets spit back out and he grabs onto a handy fig tree that is growing nearby. And that saves him and he clings to it and uh, doesn't get sucked back down by Charybdis. So it's the same pattern over and over. It's in the stars. You asked about it. Like, these are the kinds of things I don't typically talk about or show. Like, I don't show every single thing. It's like, um, these are like kind of, this is getting into like the, the stuff that's really, um, it's really 
fascinating and advanced and it's um it's not necessarily easy to to see but if you want to go back hold on let me get my uh, screen back up it's a little bit more uh advanced and, or um <laughs> they keep saying we want the full Monty in the chat. They're like, uh, <laughs> right on. No, everybody wants that. Let me. Uh, we're we're in the advanced class. Where did I put my slideshow? Hold on. <laughs> Embarrassingly, I'm looking for my slides. I've got too many windows running around here. Um, lost them. Oh, the slides are gone. No, don't worry. I've I've got it. No That's problem, right. man. I'll Doing reopen great here. the. I'll reopen the file if necessary. And again, thanks to Peter for making this free to everybody. Because yeah, that's a really generous super chat. I mean, I'm not telling people that they have to stop super chatting. You know, more support is okay too. <laughs> Don't put it all on Peter the Rock, Pietar. Yes, the Rock. Well, so we're talking about a tree that's on a rock. So here is okay. Bring back my slides, if you would, please. Chance. You bet. We're up. All right. So can everyone see the outline of Hercules? Yeah. Now, I usually don't get into this, like, um. Because it's like, wait a minute, you just showed me this outline. Now you're going to show me a totally another outline. And you're, you're telling me that Wikipedia is trying to confuse me. But this is kind of like more like what you usually see on Wikipedia. Okay, well, in some cases, the way it's shown on Wikipedia is confusing. But in some cases, it could be revealing. So Thor, I call it, over the years, I've called it in my books, version one, version two. Thor, sorry, the constellation Hercules. Sorry, I'm I'm over. I'm in. If there's, I don't know what's going on in the. Sounds fun. Yeah, yeah, we're all going on. We're all actually. I'm in a I'm in an office that's over a brewery, a really good brewery, which is you know this is perfect for talking about Thor. So there's a party going on afterwards. I'll go down and have a beer. Oh yeah, exactly. That's literally as Thor as it gets. That's about as Thor as it gets. You got to drink it out of a horn, like a really big drinking horn. There's a wonderful (laughs) myth where a Jotun tricks him with a a drinking horn that goes all the way down to the ocean. And he says, Hey Thor, you know, see if you can drink this drinking horn down in one gulp, you know, even the littlest of my Jotuns can drink it in three gulps. The bigger ones can drink it in two gulps. The really, you know, manly among us can drink it in one gulp. Let's see how you do. Little does Thor know that it stretches all the way down to the sea. So Thor's like drinking and drinking and drinking till he can't hold his breath any longer. And then he looks and he's like, what? It only went down like two millimeters. He drank the sea down by two millimeters. And all I believe that must have been how the floodwaters eventually receded. I, I always wondered, <laughs> where did all that water go? Out of a big, big <laughs> drinking horn. So, yes, afterwards, we'll all go down and drink out of a drinking horns with some delicious ale. This this uh, brewery that I'm above makes fantastic different. We'll juicy, raise a glass IPAs. to esoteric yeah. thoughts. Well, yeah, that that. um it's very, very, very sad news that we all just learned today that my friend Esoteric has transitioned to the next world, but he's still with us and everyone should go subscribe to his channel. And I'm going to later tonight, I, I actually, have, I'm going to drink a glass in his honor and make a, a little quick video just to say, I mean, what can you say in a situation like this? But other than thank you for thank the you service so of what all the things he brought to us. And, you know, I don't know any of the details beyond what's been released publicly, but uh, Esoteric is my friend. And, uh, you know, not only have I been on his channel 
many times, but we also talked on the phone and exchanged emails, you know, not, uh, not on recorded. Um, and esoteric is a great warrior for the truth. And actually that brings up, you know, the Norse myths. I talk about it in that book that you showed, um, to get into Valhalla, which is, this is associated with Odin more than Thor, of course. Um, Valhalla is Odin's hall for the, the slain warriors. You have to die in battle. And uh, I talk about it in that book. It's about, I believe these, these stories are all esoteric. They're applying to our lives. It's not, it's not always literal. It's engage in the battle in your life, like battle. You don't know what the outcome will be. This is also in the Bhagavad Gita over and over. Krishna tells Arjun, Arjun, you've got everything it takes for this battle. And Arjun's like, yeah, but I don't want to do it. I don't, I don't know the right thing to do. And Arjun says, just do what's right and don't worry about the outcome. We don't know what the outcome will be, but we have to engage in the battle An esoteric engaged in that battle. He fought that battle. And, uh, that's, that's how you go to Valhalla, uh, in the Norse myths. So anyway, I'm getting emotional. I will drink, uh, a glass of spirits to my brother esoteric. And, um, that was beautifully uh, said. Uh, thank you. And thank you for bringing that up. And, you know, we mentioned it. we were both shocked when we heard it. Um, we were talking before just to test out that I could actually show slides for a change. Um, I finally figured out must be smarter than equipment as we say in the army. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> anyway, this, is, I like that uh, you brought up the Arjun and Krishna in the chariot because, uh, I was educated by your book today to find out that that very same scene plays out in Norse mythology while Thor is dressed as a woman in a bright, yeah. <laughs> riding a chariot with Loki. So, yeah, you know, yeah, that's a yeah. side we've maybe we'll get to, but, Oh, the the Hindu enough. version yeah. is a lot more morally <laughs> um, well, uplifting. Well, Bhagavad Gita is about, I mean, basically it says that over and over and over. Engage in the battle. Do what's right. Don't worry about who's going to win. Just do what's right. That's what you have to do in this life. That battle is this life. That's what it is. It's not all these cataclysmic battles, whether it's Ragnarok or Kurukshetra in the Mahabharata or the Trojan War in the Iliad. These battles are our life. This is we're you're in it. You don't have a choice to sit out the battle. That's what that's what Krishna keeps telling Arjun. Hey Arjun, you've got the tools. He, Arjun actually went up to heaven and got the tools. And Krishna says, "You've got the tools. Um, you've got the tools. Stop sitting in the dust. Get up and get into the battle and do what's right. That's all that is asked of you is do what's right and." without attachment to the outcome. And interestingly enough, you brought up that Thor was dressed as a woman when he was riding in his cart to go to, he was retrieving his hammer actually, which is actually like, you know, his hammer. Like exactly. He's castration. Taika Waititi plays with that. Like right in the, in the most, before you get into that, I just want to read about, um, you know, how Zeus or Jupiter is often depicted as a female as well in, uh, Many different ancient authors, but the one I'm going to quote is Valerius Soranus. says, Jupiter, omnipotens, regnum rex, ipse, demenque, progenitor, genetrixque, deum. Basically saying, almighty or omnipotent Jupiter, king of kings, 
progenitor and mother of the gods. Yeah, the the R I X is a female in, ending, just like dominatrix or um, Proclus, Orpheus, called- many others also call Jupiter a man and a maid, eternal man and maid. That is, which I that think is, reflects this aspect of the the Trinity doctrine that you know the mother, father, son are three in one. It's a it's a really really intriguing line of um, of discussion and exploration. And Zeus actually gives birth to Dionysus the second time, like uh, in out of in a the, thigh, which is the Greek thigh, word Meru, as in Mount Meru, where Bacchus is nourished. Mm. Yeah, and he comes from India, doesn't he? Like, and Pythagoras shows his golden thigh on a mountain. <laughs> it's all you, the same you, guy. Man, you you are chance. This is, I mean, it's it's a joy to like see all these connections. And and uh, like I was gonna say, Taika Waititi, you know, in the most recent Thor movie, like you know, there's like a female Thor who gets his hammer, and, and he's like, "What? You know, come on, that's like." come on, that's humiliating. You know, and she's like, nope, I've got <laughs> I think it now. we're talking about the, um, I think we're talking about Ursa Major with the thigh because the Dindara Zodiac shows that to be a thigh. The word Arga, which is philologically the same as Ark in India, and Arga is like a, a spoon or a scoop, which is what the dipper is said to be, yeah, you know? And be. so the flood hero or the Eros character, the savior, regenerator, or um savior redeemer character of the trinity rides in the arga which is either a a spoon or a thigh or a boat depending on you know who you ask and where could be yeah i've also argued you know and this is like somebody said hey bring all the you know bring the bring we want we want the whole we want the advanced level if you if if everyone looks at the hercules on the screen everyone's have we got hercules on the screen we're on everyone if you look he's got one leg is to the right. That's his like forward leg. One leg is to the left, right? One leg, you know, on your screen. So yeah. the leg to the right, that's like the, the forward knee. You can see it go, the thigh goes to a bend and then it goes straight down. So if you take your thumb or your finger and just cover the part from the knee down and just look at it, just look at it. What is the thigh? What could it also look like? Oh, a ladle. I see that. Well, it could look like a male sexual organ as well, uh, like where it's coming out. You can, like, oh, I was looking at the left leg. Yeah, I kind of see a leg, a ladle leg. Yeah, in the heel yeah, yeah. and the knee bend. But yeah, yeah, okay. it does. Okay, it does. It, I'm I'm talking about the other leg. If you cover yeah, okay. the lower half, his of the, third leg, we're talking about. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Um, so that's his thigh. Quote hint hint. You know his thigh, but. um yeah, like that's but, but it's like a Priapus type of thigh, <laughs> major yes. thigh. Well, the god Ptah of ancient Egypt creates the you know universe. Well, some of the ancient Egyptian creation myths they have a variety of them, right? There's a different the different quote theologies, the Heliopolitan theology, the Memphis theology. But there's there's creation myths where the creator god basically masturbates, and the world you know comes from that. And it's the same figure here, um, as I talk about in that 2019 book that I mentioned, Ancient Worldwide System, when I'm talking about the ancient Egyptian myths. So um, that's a tangent that we got off on uh, because I brought up Bhagavad Gita and it led to all this. What I was going to show was about the tree. Um, well, tree. Can we is go in the back title, to the so tree? Yeah, yeah, let's go there. It's in the title, Yeah. So look. Um, 
and I do have to, I do have to finish it off. We've, um, yeah, yeah. We've we're covered a lot point. of ground. I've got to wherever finish you, it off. Wherever you want to show, finish, we'll go there. I will show the amazing tree, which I already mentioned in, in the Odyssey, Odysseus grabs onto a fig tree. There are many fig trees in myth. There's certainly fig trees in the Bible. There's fig trees in the Old Testament. There's fig trees in the New Testament. You know, Jesus says to Nathaniel, well, I saw you when you were sitting under the fig tree. And Nathaniel says, what? You, how, how did you, how did you know I was sitting under a fig tree? Buddha, of course, sits under a fig tree. This is the tree, um, or this is one of the trees in ancient myth. This is a very important tree. So what you have to understand is that there's a different outline of Hercules. This outline that I'm showing here, this is the H.A. Ray outline. So there's that square-shaped head. That could also be envisioned as the center of like a whirlwind or a whirlpool or a whirling disc. So figures in, we see this around the world, whirling disc or sun disc or winged discs. This is, this is associated with the same constellation and the arms coming off, you can kind of, you can kind of draw them in different ways, but the, the way you'll see it a lot is kind of an arm coming off of each of the corners of that square. And it makes this kind of whirlwind or spinning disc in the center or spiraling. Um, this is why Hercules figures, I believe are associated with winds, hurricanes. The The name hurricane comes from a, a Maya uh, in the Popol Vuh. There's a Maya God who's associated with the constellation Hercules, as I demonstrate or at least I argue, and his name is Huracan. Interestingly, in the Norse myths, in the Eddas, there's a, a Jotun who comes along when Balder has to be put out to sea. He's in his funeral, in his boat, and uh, nobody can move the boat. A giantess, a Jotun, comes along, and her name is Hurricane, and she kicks the boat out into the ocean with her giant, you know, boot she just kicks it out into the ocean very interesting that that same word hurricane and huracan and i show the celestial connections a little bit i mean there's not that much to go on in the text but it's <laughs> obviously the words are almost identical anyway yeah and when you get more than like eight words I, that are the same between a language it's basically statistically impossible that they aren't related i mean the the conventional the stuff that i'm showing here the conventional academia has nothing to to counter argument other than it's just a coincidence like oh it just pops up around the world yeah thunder figures always take this deep knee bend like i could show you figures in the maya codex that are in that identical deep knee bend and holding a thunderbolt that looks almost identical to thor i've got it on a later slide but we don't probably have time for it but i've shown it in other podcasts but this i wanted to show you the tree that's associated with hercules so that spinning disc if you look at it could also look like a kind of scraggly looking tree. Can you see that? Like the, like make the lowest arm of it, the kind of the trunk. If you look at a fig tree, if anyone has a fig tree in their backyard, it kind of looks like it's like got kind of Rasta hair coming out from all directions or a rowan tree. This is, this is why this particular constellation is associated with a tree on top of a mountain. Why on top of a mountain? Oh, I just wanted to mention, this is where I've met Peter, who generously, you know, donated for this to all be uh, 
in the public record um, at these events over the over the years we've been doing these different events. I've I've you know been up in the Scablands with Randall Carlson uh, a few times, and uh, this one that's coming up in exactly two months is with the team from Grimerica. It's called Contact at the Canyons. I just wanted to put that in there. This is actually a formation called Thor's Hammer in Bryce Canyon, Utah. We'll be going there um, at the, in this trip. So all the details are in. I just wanted to put that. That in. sounds fun. But um, to show you why it's on a mountain, like Odin, I'm, I'm not going to, I, I got to kind of hurry, but Odin is actually associated with the figure that's right underneath Hercules. Hercules is Thor. Odin is associated with Ophiuchus. Ophiuchus figures carry spears typically. If you look at that figure hard enough, if you look at the central body, you can see why it's a cross. You read this text about a cross, making a tree into a cross. Look at that central body. See how there's a triangle on the top? See how that triangle, the base of the triangle could be a crossbar? Brazen serpent. Yeah, the brazen serpent that was raised up. And in illustrations, it's often raised up on a cross-shaped pole by Moses. Chances referring to the, there's a passage in Exodus where there's a plague and um, God tells Moses, you have to lift up a serpent on a pole. Moses's staff turns into a serpent. Who do you think Moses is associated with? Which constellation? <laughs> I think we're maybe looking at an Ophiuchus character. Definitely an Ophiuchus character. Ophiuchus characters carry staffs or spears. And the reason is you can draw a line straight down through the, uh, the serpent halves. Sometimes they even carry two spears, like Hector in the Iliad carries two spears. One of and which also Ophiuchus has that tablet shape whence come the graven tablets of the law. Which are given by the written by the very finger of God. Who do you think God Jehovah is associated with? Definitely Hercules constellation. His finger is out. He's graving on the tablet of Ophiuchus or That's right. uh, inscribing on the tombstone, depending That's on right. what we're talking about. That's right. I'm just showing the spear here. This is why Odin carries a spear. This is, Ophiuchus figures invariably carry spears. I'm just giving, this is like bonus material. There's, there's uh, the eagle. This is, Odin has two uh, birds that are always accompanying him. They're the two ravens. Um, but there's two birds in the, in the Milky Way, two great birds in the Milky Way. I think these are the two ravens of Odin. But um, let me show, if you imagine that outline that I showed before, I'm just kind of wrapping up here with what I was showing you. This is one way of seeing the outline of Hercules in a different way, the spinning way, the, the whirlwind way, the whirlpool way, the tree way, the scraggly tree. If you imagine that's there's there's the spinning outline. I just drew it off to the left so it doesn't obscure what's going on. But if you imagine that in the place of Hercules, instead of that powerful kneeling figure, it's like a tree growing out of Ophiuchus. And if you remember way back when I was talking about uh, Zeus fighting Typhon, how does he defeat Typhon? He smashes a mountain down on top of Typhon. Ophiuchus is associated with mountains invariably. You mentioned Mount Meru. I'll just give you one quick proof. Mount Meru is like the pivot that they do the tug of war when they're churning the ocean of milk, the Milky Way, which is running right up to the left there, with a serpent. Like the serpent is tied around the mountain and the two sides are pulling on the serpent, the head and the tail. Can you see how Ophiuchus is like a mountain with a serpent and there's tug of war? Can you see that? Oh, yeah. Ophiuchus is the mountain at the center 
of so many mythologies. Anyway, you can put that scraggly tree or, you know, spinning disc outline of Hercules on top of that mountain. So if you just erase the green outline of Hercules in your mind and shrink down the red outline and put it where Hercules is, you see what I'm saying? That's your tree, the central pivot of the earth, Ophiuchus, the central pivot of the heavens. The tree is right there. That is the center of everything. The ancients called it chaos. It's, it's the connection to the infinite. It's the connection. We, that is our pivot. That is, the, that is the connection between our existence here in this mortal body, but we have access to the infinite. It's, a, it's the pivot point. It's I'm, the I'm open to this being allegorical to the pole as well. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, yeah, it's not but, one or the other. Just because no. we see this vortex here in Hercules doesn't mean that it isn't also allegorical to the pole. Just putting that out there for people because some yeah, yeah, of yeah. the audience are very polar centric and that's fine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, the chopping down of the pole, you know, the, Hamlet's Mill, I think we talked about last time. They talk about, you know, the chopping down of the world axis. It I've been listening every, to that audio book. It's good. Yeah, it throws the whole heavens out of joint procession, you know, all that. Um, so anyway, I just um, let me. Why don't we go back to just our faces? I'll, I'll just kind of finish here. Um, yeah, I know. I know you're trying well, wait, to go. Wait, before uh, we do that, do you still have it up? I'll just show this slide. Oh, sure. I wanted to say one thing about the tree really quick, too, being that the linga is the mast of the ark, but mm-hmm. the, the ark or the, the boat is also the central holy mountain or the world mm-hmm. tree. Symbolically, some similarities there. Uh, the mast of the boat is the lingam. And the tree is where lingua language is given to whichever version of the logos we're talking about. So, yeah. Odin. That, yeah. Odin, the God of wisdom. Right. And uh, the lingam or the, you know, the phallic, you know, whose it is, you know, which God it belongs to in, in India. Shiva is typically, yeah. Shiva or I've actually, Siva. Uh, yeah. Or Shiva. It's actually, I, I, um, I once, knew uh, a uh, a player of a, sp- a specific drum like the king of all the drums of india who's a he's from the brahmin caste or class you know he's he's a, a you know trained in all this and he says he pronounces it shiva he's he's from you know his family's from india but uh yeah mostly we hear it pronounced shiva over here but after that i usually say shiva but it doesn't matter the shiva lingam or the shiva lingam which constellation do you think shiva is associated with or shiva and he has a serpent, by the way. He's Ophiuchus. I mean, that it looks like a lingam. Like Ophiuchus is that lingam, and they put, you know, they pour milk on top of it, and and um, you know, it's it's a big traditional uh, ceremony. It's ceremony. It's it's important. It's associated with Ophiuchus. I show that in ancient worldwide system, but also Odin is associated. As I was showing, I was trying to show just briefly. Odin is associated with Ophiuchus. Odin is the wisdom figure. This is a picture from. And Ophis, the the word for serpent, is like Sophia, Sophos, Sophos, wisdom. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Sophia. See, these these wisdom figures, they can be male or female. They're typically associated with Ophiuchus. The goddess Athena, she carries, what's her weapon? Do you know? Uh, She's a spear wielder as well. Spear, yeah, she's associated. She's the goddess. The shield and the spear is also very like the boat, the mast and the the hull of the boat. You're so right. You're so right. And it's, it's also celestial and it's, it is Ophiuchus. And she comes out of the head of who? Zeus. Upater. 
Yeah, she comes or right Zeus. out of the head of Zeus, and Ophiuchus looks like, you know, Zeus is like bending down, and Ophiuchus is like, boom, springing full grown out of the head of Zeus. That's Athena. She's the goddess of wisdom. And this is the wisdom figure in the Bible, Solomon. He sits in between two pillars. Who do you think he's associated with? What constellation would he be associated with? Ophiuchus. <laughs> he's the wisdom figure. This is the scene. Do you see anybody in there that looks like a Thor or a, a Hercules figure? The swordsman yeah, definitely do. The swordsman is carrying the sword over his back and he's holding an arching baby. Do you remember an arch-shaped constellation right in front of uh, Hercules at all during this presentation? Yeah, we're talking about the uh, Northern Crown, Corona Borealis. It is. It is undeniable that. Um, the figures in the Bible are based on the same system. It is all the same system. It is around the world. It is for our benefit. Oh, we should take the, I'll, I'll just stop sharing and we can go back to us talking to just kind of finish off. Cause I do have to. <laughs> yeah. You, uh, you, you get um, out of here as soon as you're ready. <laughs> I'm having a lot of fun though, David, thanks for coming no, back. This, so is soon. Fan, this is fantastic. I hope everyone, now everyone knows the whole system. Just kidding. I mean, there's it's, it's endless. Like I can't give it away in two hours because it's like this is like an endless profound system that goes to the depths. It's like, so I'm not, I'm not worried about this. Isn't stuff that I usually cover your, your viewers. And, you know, thanks again, Peter. I, I'll keep mentioning Peter because I'm uh, you know, I'm really grateful for that, that I, I'm grateful that all this gets recorded and people can see it. Look, you just got like a lot of the pieces of how this thing works together a lot more than I usually get through in a uh, podcast, but you wanted to get into some of the deeper, like the tree. And there's 85 other constellations out there that we could. It's so profound, this system, but it, it, what I'm trying to uh, kind of finish up or wrap up with is for our benefit and blessing. It's for wisdom. Wasn't just given to Solomon. This is it's, it's, it's esoteric. It's talking about you have access to that wisdom through self through higher self solomon is a higher self figure so is buddha so is sophia in the you know the gnostic sophia is a higher self figure so is inanna the goddess of uh sumer who goes down into the underworld but she comes back this is higher self is our connection to the divine and it uh, often will be an ophiuchus figure is odin who brings down the wisdom like when he gets the runes on the tree, like you said, the, the giving of language and uh, when he drinks from the well. Um, so this, this is about each one of us, but it's also about society. Remember the Thor story about the, you know, the, the people who want to suppress this ancient system may not be doing it for our, uh, for humanity's benefit. It may be for like, oligarchical suppression of the people. And well, I think that there could guess. even be, uh, I mean, we talk about this on the channel sometimes, but there could be a very real psychological component in terms of mind control capacity to understand these archetypes of the wisdom tradition, utilize them as it is clearly done. You can decode news stories and, and events in the media and Hollywood movies and all that through the exact lens of this and whether, you know, to what degree that's purposely done and to what degree you just see the exact same archetypal logos coming through everything that springs forth from human imagination. We can't say which one it is one or the other, but to 
some extent, there is purposeful exploitation of this knowledge to play on stuff that is like atavistic to human consciousness to manipulate a certain result, a certain reaction. And uh, it's demonstrable. We talk about that stuff a lot on this channel, yeah. too. Yeah. No, look, I like look, to say sim- symbolic literacy is psychic self-defense. It is self-defense and it is it's, it's defense against trauma, deliberate trauma. Like, I believe there's abundant evidence that these myths are about healing trauma, recovery of self. And it's quite clear that there's also like bad guy martial artists, let's say that like, like, like Kung Fu is neutral. You could use it to defend against oppressors like bullies or people who are trying to kill or rape or something. You know, if a a good Kung Fu master will come in and stop someone who's oppressing or raping somebody, a bad Kung Fu, like the Cobra Kai guy was like, Oh no, this is for, this is for kicking other people's butts and ruling the school. That's what it's for. No mercy. Yeah. So, true Kung Fu is knowing how to never get into a fight. Yeah. But the, the, or how to win without getting into a fight, how to, what prevent. I'm trying to say is, yeah, these, these powerful, uh, these powerful, this powerful wisdom can be used to bully and uh, traumatize. Uh, that's not what it's, that's not what its true purpose is, I don't believe, but that but that's what it can be used for. So anyway, uh, it's clear that that people are trying to use it to traumatize, and um, I kind of lost I, I kind of lost the the soaring conclusion that I was about to arrive at. But anyway, knowing this system, there is no conclusion. Yeah, there <laughs> there is no con- it's all it's all open. Look, but. Um, yeah, I really believe it is for our benefit and blessing, and it was given to all people. And I hope that it's I'm I'm uh, by helping people to understand it, it will it will help others, but also help society. Like I believe this is an ongoing struggle that that is very ancient. I I agree with that. There was something else, but. Maybe it'll come to me, but we really, I, I do need, I'm supposed to meet somebody a few minutes ago. I thought, oh, I thought, you know, two hours, that's probably pretty safe to say we've been going for two thirty-five. So, but you thank got you slides everybody. left over, bring them back. We'll do yeah. it again. Well, I have thanks. a lot of fun with you. I'm really glad to, uh, you know, get to know you and hang out. Let's keep doing it. Yeah. Thanks. Thanks chance for this, you know, venue to, to, share this with others. Thanks to everybody who's out there listening. And I really um, think it's important, these alternative voices or platforms, you know, to bring it back to what esoteric was doing esoteric for those who don't know, I think it's really, it would be really good if everybody would go subscribe to his channel because his, I'll put a link in the, yeah, his uh, friends are, are trying to keep it going. And, and uh, there's some fantastic interviews on there with all kinds of people who you'll recognize and maybe people who you won't know about, but that are scholars. And he really. Our very own slick dissident, AKA Gabriel was our, our very good friend, my co-host on my other show. He was uh-huh. uh esoteric's last video and he gave a really great demonstration of how the Marvel movie series is exactly this tied into the tarot. Uh, that's symbolism. what I was going to, yeah, that's what I was going to, um, point out so um, uh, movies i'll come back to that right at the very end um but what i was going to say is go subscribe to his channel first of all it's great content second of all it's just 
it's encouraging to his friends and family who are trying to keep it going. And also, um, you know, I believe esoteric is still, he's still um, working in this fight. You know, he's, he's gone on to his next phase, but uh, I believe that, you know, what we do uh, continues on in, in, you know, these, uh, who knows exactly what the mystery is, but I think a go, go subscribe to that. And, uh, and the other thing I was going to say is, um, uh, oh yeah, his, because his, he really tried to create his platform, his show around this concept of astrotheology. It was very central to what he was exploring in, in virtually every single conversation or, um, you know, video that he put up, that was that. So if you enjoy this subject, that's, that's what um, was kind of the the central theme of all the uh, different content that he has on his channel. Um, so there's that. And then I just, I did want to say, yes, Hollywood does seem to employ this. I agree. It's hard to tell, like clearly Hollywood there, there is use of that platform for, you know, by the, the, you know, the bad Kung Fu people who are using it like the Cobra Kai guy to oppress the school. But there are, I have found down through the, if you watch movies down through the decades, there are directors who are try I believe trying to show things like Capricorn one with, with Josh Brolin's dad, John Brolin, watch that movie. It is, it is pretty eye opening Capricorn one, but also I'll point out you know, Tarantino, I, I used to, when I first saw Tarantino films, I violently disliked them. Now he's, he's clearly a genius and I see signs that he is doing, he is showing things when he titles something once upon a time, he's saying, you've been sold a fairy tale. Let me show you some things like what you think, you know, about the Manson murders may not be, you may have been sold a fairy tale. He also starts in glorious bastards with the words once upon a time, he's saying, you know what, <laughs> yeah. what you think about the end of World War II, because that's depicted in the movie. And it's like, wait a minute, that didn't happen. Hold on. What the heck? He's saying you've been sold a fairy tale. Or I think that could be a legitimate argument for what he is showing something. I'm not saying you can never I'm, tell I'm if who's on what side or I have no a point idea. in the right direction. But yeah. I have no idea. But there are movies that over the years have revealed or. And I don't think it's just How about a revelation they live? of the method. Yeah, they live. John Carpenter. JC, um, there, the there Carpenter. Are, there are directors out there who I believe are trying to, um, it's almost like that that little message that was snuck into the the this propaganda about Olaf. Somebody put in this story like, you know, just consider this. It's like, I don't know, but I think there's possibly, look, you know, there are men and women who are artists and some of them are trying to uh, uplift and some of them may be on the bad guy side. And I'm not going to, I'm not going to claim to know who's on which side, but the more, the more we can get the message out and the more we can help one another. I, you know, I think most, I personally think most human beings want what's best for, you know, others. I don't think we're all, uh, trying to devour and tear each other down. I think, yeah, I think human nature is innately good. 
I, I really do too. I think people in, innately rebel against these tyrannical systems and innately know that they're wrong. And that's why mind control is needed, actually. So anyway, on that hopefully positive note, thanks so much, Chance. And uh, I hope that it's positive. Look, take it. I hope that people who are watching will take it in a positive way and do it, do things to help others and and do what's right, like Krishna was told to do, or like like Krishna told Arjun to do in this battle that we're all in. Really great way to leave us. And um, you have a good night and you best get on now. Get, I'm going to talk to the kids a little longer. <laughs> All right, Chance. Thanks very much. I will find the log out button. Away with you. <laughs> we'll do it again, man. I, get, I really, get, I love this. Yeah. The audience super appreciates it. All right. So bye-bye, David. And thanks everyone for hanging out. I just wanted to maybe cover off a, a little bit more that I didn't get to in, from my notes coming up. Um, really just one thing. I wanted to read this fascinating quote from a book called Inquire, Inquiry into, what is it? The Origin of Christmas Day, of all things. And this is from Israel Worsley is the author's name. And I found this quote out of one of the spirit world books. So, you know, people, people always wonder where I get like, uh, apparently PhD level ability to make connections. Well, I grant a lot of credit to Dylan Sicosio, our good friend and frequent guest who has put together the keys to the system in his book series. And then, you know, taking that and running with it. Once you have it, you're going to start your path. IQ is pattern recognition and <laughs> pattern recognition is about having enough information linked together. The problem with all the special specialization of academia and all the various other uh, guilds and cults out there with their own jargon and, and divisive mentality hoarding and privatizing wisdom is that you don't make connections from one thing to another. And the more you can syncretize, the more you can link the chains of information together. Then when you recall one thing, you're also calling up all the other things that you have tagged to it. So I believe that this entire study of astrotheology is a spiritual study because it gives you pattern recognition capability to see the fractality of this logos, this archetypal innate wisdom of how nature builds, how nature orders things, and maybe even larger cycles of time. Who knows? But that's way more speculative. Anyway, going to read this quote from, it's a little bit longer, but I find it fascinating because he's talking about the, uh, <laughs> eventually he makes it all the way to where you get Yule, <laughs> but we're talking about As Asa Thor, we're talking about Teut or Thoth and the connection to Odin. So from this book, Inquiry into Christmas Day, the origin of Christmas Day, he says, this doctrine was of very great antiquity and generally received by all the Gothic and Celtic nations. These philosophers taught the supreme god, Teut, or Woden. Bear in mind, Teut comes from Theuth or Thoth, demonstrating here that Woden is Thoth or Hermes or Mercury, Jesus, etc. So this supreme god, Teut or Woden, was the active principle, the soul of the world which uniting itself to matter had thereby put it into a condition to produce intelligences or inferior gods and men. 
uh, note for me. I'm not saying that this doctrine is accurate, but this is his take on the doctrine. I think that he's pretty, pretty right on with this. We're talking doctrine of emanations, supreme God producing intelligences of inferior gods and men. Going on, he says, this the poets express by saying that Odin espoused Freya or the lady. By the way, Hera means the lady, wife of Zeus. Odin espoused Freya, the lady, by way of eminence. Yet they allowed a great difference between these two principles. The supreme was eternal, whereas matter was his work, and of course had a beginning. This is a, another note for me. This is a very disputed doctrine, the eternality of matter, or was matter something that was created ex nihilo? Continuing on, he says, all of this was expressed by the phrase, Earth is the daughter and wife of the universal father. From this mystical union was born the god Thor, Asa Thor. The Lord Thor, he was the firstborn of the supreme, the greatest of the intelligences that were born of the union of the two principles. The characters given him correspond much with those which the Romans gave to their Jupiter. He too was the thunderer, and to him was devoted the fifth day. Thor's dog. In German and Dutch, Donderdog, Thunder Day. <clears throat> Donder means thunder. Dog means day. The common oaths of these people mark the same origin. Od Othin. <laughs> As an alternative to Odin. The common oaths of these people mark the same origin. They swear by Donder and Blexen, Thunder and Lightning. Friday took its name from Freya, Freya's Day as Wednesday did from Woden, Woden's dog. Tuis was the name which the Saxons gave to the son of the Supreme, whence Tuesday. Thor, being the firstborn, was called the eldest of the sons. He is made a middle divinity, a mediator between God and man. Such too was the Persian's god, for Thor was venerated also as the intelligence that animated the sun and fire. The Persians declared that the most illustrious of all the intelligences was that which they worshipped under the symbol of fire. They called him Mithra, or the mediator god. The Scythians called him Goeto Cyrus, the good star. Note the similarity to Osiris. All the Celtic nations were accustomed to worship the sun, either as distinguished from Thor, or as his symbol. It was their custom to celebrate a feast at the winter solstice when the when that great luminary began to return again to this part of the heavens. They called it Yule, from Heol, Helios, Helios, the sun, which to this day signifies the sun in the language of Bretagne, Britain, and Cornwall, whence the French word Noel. So, I, I really like that uh, description of. You know, that the universal father, mother, son, trinity aspect of the doctrine. Uh, hopefully you guys got something out of that. Mostly just wanted to see what uh, David would get out of that. But since he's not here, we'll just move on. You know, after this talk, I'm going to catch up on my emails. There's a lot of people inquiring about getting tunings done. So <laughs> if you want a tuning with this uh, Mjolnir Thor's fork right here basically a Vajra if I hold it over my head uh, please hit me up chance at interversepodcast.com things are filling up uh, really 
quite fast over the next couple of months due to the tinfoil hat episode I did with Sam Tripoli. Good times. Uh, anyway, I don't know how I could really put a better cap on this conversation than David did. That to do the right thing for the right thing's sake is really what the wisdom tradition is trying to lead us to. I appreciate that. I think that that is what wisdom is. Whenever you no longer need or gnosis, really, you no longer need an authority to tell you what's right and wrong. And you're no longer doing something because someone told you it's the right thing, but because you're connected into that inner voice within that tells you whether or not something is right. We all have it. Conscience is a, even a collective word for it, but that's the logos. In my opinion, that is bringing the savior into your being or your, your heart is when you no longer can ignore the voice or the feeling of this feels right. This feels wrong. I'm doing someone doing right by someone or by myself, most of all, or harming them. So uh, it's been a really fun conversation with uh, David Warner Matheson. Make sure you check him out at starmythworld.com. That's going to be linked in the show notes. Thank you to Peter for the nice super chat. And I kind of wanted this whole conversation to be free. I was kind of feeling it anyway. And then that nice affirmation of the $108 donation. Thank you for that was super astronomical. I mean, that's a for sure procession number. It's a phi encode, Fibonacci encode, so many good things. Loving Star Myths of the World, Volume 4, The Norse Mythology. I plan to read all of David's books eventually and sooner than later because uh, I'm getting a ton out of it, especially with the keys out of the Spirit World books. And I'll announce too that Dylan, his newest book six, Terminalia, is out as of two days ago on that mystical 216 day. <laughs> Robo Honky says, Sam sells boner chews for toothless meth enthusiasts. I don't disagree, but it was a good, <laughs> it was good for, good for our community to be able to get me on that, on there. So, you know, I, I don't love all that either. <laughs> you don't see me solid vape pens, but hey, to each their own. And well, we'll wrap it up. Thanks everyone for tuning in. Going to play us out with a track by my buddy, David. Uh, not the same David Matheson, different David, but he goes by Wisdom Traders for his musical moniker. I play him all the time. You probably already know. And, uh, you know, this would have been the intermission track between the first hour and the second hour. So just ignore the countdown that says show resumes in three minutes because it's not going to resume. This is it. We're wrapping up. Good night, everybody. <laughs> Thanks for being here. Much love. And uh, I'll talk to you guys on the next Vibrant. We're going to have a good time. <laughs>